This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Tree of Life by C.L. Moore. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs one hour, ten minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Tree of Life by C.L. Moore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite Over time-ruined Ilar, the searching planes swooped and circled. Northwest Smith, peering up at them with a steel-pale stare from the shelter of a half-collapsed temple, thought of vultures wheeling above carrion. All day long now they had been raking these ruins for him. Presently he knew thirst would begin to parch his throat and hunger to gnaw at him. There was neither food nor water in these ancient Martian ruins, and he knew that it could only be a matter of time before the urgencies of his own body would drive him out to signal those wheeling patrol ships and trade his hard-won liberty for food and drink. He crouched lower under the shadow of the temple arch and cursed the accuracy of the patrol gunner whose flame blast had caught his dodging ship just at the edge of Ilar's ruins. Presently it occurred to him that in most Martian temples of the ancient days an ornamental well had stood in the outer court for the benefit of wayfarers. Of course, all water in it would be a million years dry now, but for lack of anything better to do he rose from his seat at the edge of the collapsed central dome and made his cautious way by still intact corridors toward the front of the temple. He paused in a tangle of wreckage at the courtyard's edge and looked out across the sun-drenched expanse of pavement toward that ornate well that once had served travelers who passed by here in days when Mars was a green planet. It was an unusually elaborate well, and amazingly well-preserved. Its rim had been inlaid with a mosaic pattern whose symbolism must have once borne deep meaning, and above it, in a great fan of time-defying bronze, an elaborate grillwork portrayed the inevitable tree of life pattern which so often appears in the symbolism of the three worlds. Smith looked at it a bit incredulously from his shelter. It was so miraculously preserved amidst all this chaos of broken stone casting a delicate tracery of shadow on the sunny pavement as perfectly as it must have done a million years ago, when dusty travelers paused here to drink. He could picture them filing in at noontime through the great gates that— The vision vanished abruptly as his questioning eyes made the circle of the ruined walls. There had been no gate. He could not find a trace of it anywhere around the outer wall of the court. The only entrance here, as nearly as he could tell from the foundations that remained, had been the door in whose ruins he now stood. Queer. This must have been a private court, then, its great grill-crowned well reserved for the use of the priests. Or wait, had there not been a priest-king, Ilar, after whom the city was named? A wizard-king, so legend said, who ruled temple as well as palace with an iron hand. 
this elaborately patterned well of material royal enough to withstand the weight of ages might well have been sacrosanct for the use of that long-dead monarch. It might— Across the sun-bright pavement swept the shadow of a plane. Smith dodged back into deeper hiding while the ship circled low over the courtyard. And it was then, as he crouched against a crumbled wall and waited motionless for the danger to pass, that he became aware for the first time of a sound that startled him so he could scarcely credit his ears. A recurrent sound, choked and sorrowful, the sound of a woman sobbing. The incongruity of it made him forgetful for a moment of the peril hovering overhead in the sun-hot outdoors. The dimness of the temple ruins became a living and vital place for that moment, throbbing with the sound of tears. He looked about, half in incredulity, wondering if hunger and thirst were playing tricks on him already, or if these broken halls might be haunted by a million years old sorrow that wept along the corridors to drive its hearers mad. There were tales of such haunters in some of Mars's older ruins. The hair prickled faintly at the back of his neck as he laid a hand on the butt of his force-gun and commenced a cautious prowl toward the source of the muffled noise. Presently he caught a flash of white, luminous in the gloom of these ruined walls, and went forward with soundless steps, eyes narrowed in the effort to make out what manner of creature this might be that wept alone in time-forgotten ruins. It was a woman, or it had the dim outlines of a woman huddled against an angle of fallen walls and veiled in a fabulous shower of long dark hair. But there was something uncannily odd about her. He could not focus his pale stare upon her outlines. She was scarcely more than a luminous blot of whiteness in the gloom, shimmering with a look of unreality which the sound of her sobs denied. Before he could make up his mind just what to do, something must have warned the weeping girl that she was no longer alone, for the sound of her tears checked suddenly, and she lifted her head, turning to him a face no more distinguishable than her body's outlines. He made no effort to resolve the blurred features into visibility, for out of that luminous mask burned two eyes that caught his with an almost perceptible impact, and gripped them in a stare from which he could not have turned if he would. They were the most amazing eyes he had ever met, colored like moonstone, milky, translucent, so that they looked almost blind, and that magnetic stare held him motionless. In the instant that she gripped him with that fixed moonstone look, he felt oddly as if a tangible bond were taut between them. Then she spoke, and he wondered if his mind after all had begun to give way in the haunted loneliness of dead Ilar. For though the words she spoke fell upon his ears in a gibberish of meaningless sounds, yet in his brain a message formed with a clarity that far transcended the halting communication of words and her milky-colored eyes bored into his face with a fierce intensity. "'I'm lost! I'm lost!' wailed the voice in his brain. A rush of sudden tears brimmed the compelling eyes, veiling their brilliance, and he was free again with that clouding of the moonstone surfaces. Her voice wailed, but the words were meaningless, and no knowledge formed in his brain to match them. Stiffly he stepped back a pace and looked down at her, a feeling of helpless incredulity rising within him. 
for he still could not focus directly upon the shining whiteness of her, and nothing save those moonstone eyes were clear to him. The girl sprang to her feet and rose on tiptoe, gripping his shoulders with urgent hands. Again the blind intensity of her eyes took hold of his, with a force almost as tangible as the clutch of her hands. Again that stream of intelligence poured into his brain, strongly, pleadingly. Please, please take me back. I'm so frightened. I, I can't find my way. Oh, please. He blinked down at her, his dazed mind gradually realizing the basic facts of what was happening. Obviously her milky, unseeing eyes held a magnetic power that carried her thoughts to him without the need of a common speech. And they were the eyes of a powerful mind, the outlets from which a stream of fierce energy poured into his brain. Yet the words they conveyed were the words of a terrified and helpless girl. A strong sense of wariness was rising in him as he considered the incongruity of speech and power both of which were beating upon him more urgently with every breath. The mind of a forceful and strong-willed woman carrying the sobs of a frightened girl. There was no sincerity in it. Please, please, cried her impatience in his brain. Help me. Guide me back. Back where? He heard his own voice asking. The tree wailed that queer speech in his brain, while gibberish was all his ears heard, and the moonstone stare transfixed him strongly. The tree of life! Oh, take me back to the shadow of the tree! A vision of the grill-ornamented well leaped into his memory. It was the only tree symbol he could think of just then. But what possible connection could there be between the well and the lost girl? If she was lost, Another wail in that unknown tongue, another anguished shake of his shoulders, brought a sudden resolution into his groping mind. There could be no harm in leading her back to the well, to whose grill she must surely be referring. And strong curiosity was growing in his mind. Much more than met the eye was concealed in this queer incident. And a wild guess had flashed through his mind that perhaps she might have come from some subterranean world into which the well descended. It would explain her luminous pallor, if not her blurriness, and, too, her eyes did not seem to function in the light. There was a much more incredible explanation of her presence, but he was not to know it for a few minutes yet. "'Come along,' he said, taking the clutching hands gently from his shoulders. "'I'll lead you to the well.' She sighed in a deep gust of relief and dropped her compelling eyes from his, murmuring in that strange gabbling tongue what must have been thanks. He took her by the hand and turned toward the ruined archway of the door. Against his fingers her flesh was cool and firm. To the touch she was tangible, but even thus near his eyes refused to focus upon the cloudy opacity of her body, the dark blur of her streaming hair. Nothing but those burning, blinded eyes were strong enough to pierce the veil that parted them. She stumbled along at his side over the rough floor of the temple, saying nothing more, panting with eagerness to return to her incomprehensible tree. How much of that eagerness was assumed, Smith still could not be quite sure. When they reached the door, he halted her for a moment, scanning the sky for danger. Apparently the ships had finished with this quarter of the city, for he could see two or three of them half a mile away, hovering low over Ilar's northern section. 
He could risk it without much peril. He led the girl cautiously out into the sun-hot court. She could not have known by sight that they neared the well. But when they were within twenty paces of it, she flung up her blurred head suddenly and tugged at his hand. It was she who led him that last stretch which parted the two from the well. In the sun the shadow tracery of the grill's symbolic pattern lay vividly outlined on the ground. The girl gave a little gasp of delight. She dropped his hand and ran forward three short steps and plunged into the very center of that shadowy pattern on the ground. And what happened then was too incredible to believe. The pattern ran over her like a garment curving to the curve of her body in the way all shadows do. But as she stood there, striped and laced with the darkness of it, there came a queer shifting in the lines of black tracery, a subtle, inexplicable movement to one side, and with that motion she vanished. It was exactly as if that shifting had moved her out of one world into another. Stupidly Smith stared at the spot from which she had disappeared. Then several things happened almost simultaneously. The zoom of a plane broke suddenly into the quiet. A black shadow dipped low over the rooftops, and Smith, too late, realized that he stood defenseless in full view of the searching ships. There was only one way out, and that was too fantastic to put faith in. But he had no time to hesitate. With one leap he plunged full into the midst of the shadow of the Tree of Life. Its tracery flowed around him, molding its pattern to his body, and outside the boundaries everything executed a queer little sideways dip and slipped in the most extraordinary manner, like an optical illusion, into quite another scene. There was no intervention of blankness. It was as if he looked through the bars of a grill upon a picture which without warning slipped sideways, while between the bars appeared another scene, a curious dim landscape gray as if with the twilight of early evening. The air had an oddly thickened look, through which he saw the quiet trees and the flower-spangled grass of the place with a queer, unreal blending, like the landscape in a tapestry, all its outlines blurred. In the midst of this tapestried twilight the burning whiteness of the girl he had followed blazed like a flame. She had paused a few steps away and stood waiting apparently quite sure that he would come after. He grinned a little to himself as he realized it, knowing that curiosity must almost certainly have driven him in her wake, even if the necessity for shelter had not compelled his following. She was clearly visible now, in this thickened dimness, visible and very lovely, and a little unreal. She shone with a burning clarity, the only vivid thing in the whole twilight world, Eyes upon that blazing whiteness, Smith stepped forward, scarcely realizing that he had moved. Slowly he crossed the dark grass toward her. That grass was soft underfoot and thick with small, low-blooming flowers of a shining pallor. Botticelli painted such spangled swards for the feet of his angels. Upon it the girl's bare feet gleamed whiter than the blossoms. She wore no garment but the royal mantle of her hair sweeping about her in a cloak of shining darkness that had a queer, unreal tinge of purple in that low light. It brushed her ankles in its fabulous length. From the hood of it she watched Smith coming toward her, a smile on her pale mouth and a light blazing in the deeps of her moonstone eyes. 
She was not blind now, nor frightened. She stretched out her hand to him confidently. It's my turn now to lead you, she smiled. As before, the words were gibberish, but the penetrating stare of those strange white eyes gave them a meaning in the depths of his brain. Automatically his hand went out to hers. He was a little dazed, and her eyes were very compelling. Her fingers twined in his, and she set off over the flowery grass, pulling him beside her. He did not ask where they were going, lost in the dreamy spell of the still gray enchanted place. He felt no need for words. He was beginning to see more clearly in the odd, blurring twilight that ran the outlines of things together in that queer, tapestried manner. And he puzzled in a futile, muddled way as he went on over what sort of land he had come into. Overhead was darkness, paling into twilight near the ground, so that when he looked up he was staring into bottomless deeps of starless night. Trees and flowering shrubs and the flower-starred grass stretched emptily about them in the thick, confusing gloom of the place. He could see only a little distance through that dim air. It was as if they walked a strip of tapestried twilight in some unlighted dream. And the girl, with her lovely luminous body and rich-colored robe of hair, was like a woman in a tapestry, too, unreal and magical. After a while, when he had become a little adjusted to the queerness of the whole scene, he began to notice furtive movements in the shrubs and trees they passed. Things flickered too swiftly for him to catch their outlines, but from the tail of his eye he was aware of motion and somehow of eyes that watched. That sensation was a familiar one to him, and he kept an uneasy gaze on those shiftings in the shrubbery as they went on. Presently he caught a watcher in full view between bush and tree, and saw that it was a man, a little furtive dark-skinned man who dodged hastily back into cover again before Smith's eyes could do more than take in the fact of his existence. After that he knew what to expect and could make them out more easily. Little darting people with big eyes that shone with a queer, sorrowful darkness from their small, frightened faces as they scuttled through the bushes, dodging always just out of plain sight among the leaves. He could hear the soft rustle of their passage, and once or twice when they passed near a clump of shrubbery he thought he caught the echo of little whispering calls, gentle as the rustle of leaves and somehow full of a strange warning note so clear that he caught it even amid the murmur of their speech. Warning calls, and little furtive hiders in the leaves, and a landscape of tapestried blurring carpeted with Botticelli flower-strewn sward. It was all a dream, he felt quite sure of that. It was a long while before curiosity awakened in him sufficiently to make him break the stillness. But at last he asked dreamily, Where are we going? The girl seemed to understand that without the necessity of her bond her hypnotic eyes made, for she turned and caught his eyes in a white stare and answered, To Thag. Thag desires you. What is Thag? In answer to that she launched, without preliminary, upon a little sing-song monologue of explanation whose stereotyped formula made him faintly uneasy with the thought that it must have been made very often to attain the status of a set speech, made to many men, perhaps, whom Thag had desired, 
And what became of them afterward, he wondered. But the girl was speaking. Many ages ago there dwelt in Ilar the great King Ilar, for whom the city was named. He was a magician of mighty power, but not mighty enough to fulfill all his ambitions. So by his arts he called up out of the darkness the being known as Thag, and with him struck a bargain. By that bargain Thag was to give of his limitless power, serving Ilar all the days of Ilar's life. And in return the king was to create a land for Thag's dwelling-place, and people it with slaves, and furnish a priestess to tend Thag's needs. This is that land. I am that priestess, the latest of a long line of women born to serve Thag. The tree-people are his, his lesser servants. I have spoken softly so that the tree-people do not hear, for to them Thag is the center and focus of creation, the end and beginning of all life. But to you I have told the truth. But what does Thag want of me? It is not for Thag's servants to question Thag. Then what becomes afterward of the men Thag desires? He pursued. You must ask Thag that. She turned her eyes away as she spoke, snapping the mental bond that had flowed between them with a suddenness that left Smith dizzy. He went on at her side more slowly, pulling back a little on the tug of her fingers. By degrees the sense of dreaminess was fading, and alarm began to stir in the deeps of his mind. After all, there was no reason why he need let this blank-eyed priestess lead him up to the very maw of her god. She had lured him into this land by what he knew now to have been a trick. Might she not have worse tricks than that in store for him? She held him, after all, by nothing stronger than the clasp of her fingers. If he could keep his eyes turned from hers, therein lay her real power. But he could fight it if he chose. And he began to hear more clearly than ever the queer note of warning in the rustling whispers of the tree-folk who still fluttered in and out of sight among the leaves. The twilight place had taken on menace and evil. Suddenly he made up his mind. He stopped, breaking the clasp of the girl's hand. "'I'm not going,' he said. She swung round in a sweep of richly tinted hair, words jetting from her in a gush of incoherence. But he dared not meet her eyes, and they conveyed no meaning to him. Resolutely he turned away, ignoring her voice, and set out to retrace the way they had come. She called after him once in a high, clear voice that somehow held a note of warning as that in the rustling voices of the tree-people. But he kept on doggedly, not looking back. She laughed then, sweetly and scornfully a laugh that echoed uneasily in his mind long after the sound of it had died upon the twilight air. After a while he glanced back over one shoulder, half expecting to see the luminous dazzle of her body still glowing in the dim glade where he had left her, but the blurred tapestry landscape was quite empty. He went on in the midst of a silence so deep it hurt his ears, and in a solitude unhaunted even by the shy presences of the tree-folk. They had vanished with the fire-bright girl, and the whole twilight land was empty save for himself. He plodded on across the dark grass, crushing the upturned flower-faces under his boots, and asking himself wearily if he could be mad. 
There seemed little other explanation for this hushed and tapestried solitude that had swallowed him up. In that thunderous quiet, in that deathly solitude, he went on. When he had walked for what seemed to him much longer than it should have taken to reach his starting point, and still no sign of an exit appeared, he began to wonder if there were any way out of the gray land of Thag. For the first time he realized that he had come through no tangible gateway. He had only stepped out of a shadow, and now that he thought of it there were no shadows here. The grayness swallowed everything up, leaving the landscape oddly flat, like a badly drawn picture. He looked about helplessly, quite lost now, and not sure in what direction he should be facing, for there was nothing here by which to know directions. The trees and shrubs and the starry grass still stretched about him, uncertainly outlined in that changeless dusk. They seemed to go on forever. But he plodded ahead, unwilling to stop because of a queer tension in the air, somehow as if all the blurred trees and shrubs were waiting in breathless anticipation, centering upon his stumbling figure. But all trace of animate life had vanished with the disappearance of the priestess's white glowing figure. Head down, paying little heed to where he was going, he went on over the flowery sward. An odd sense of voids about him startled Smith at last out of his lethargic plodding. He lifted his head. He stood just at the edge of a line of trees, dim and indistinct in the unchanging twilight. Beyond them, he came to himself with a jerk and stared incredulously. Beyond them, the grass ran down to nothingness, merging by imperceptible degrees into a streaked and arching void. Not the sort of emptiness into which a material body could fall, but a solid nothing, curving up toward the dark zenith as the inside of a sphere curves. No physical thing could have entered there. It was too utterly void, an involutable emptiness which no force could invade. He stared up along the inward arch of that curving, impassable wall. Here, then, was the edge of the queer land Ilar had wrestled out of space itself. This arch must be the curving of solid space which had been bent awry to enclose the magical land. There was no escape this way. He could not even bring himself to approach any nearer to that streaked and arching blank. He could not have said why, but it woke in him an inner disquiet so strong that after a moment's staring he turned his eyes away. Presently he shrugged and set off along the inside of the line of trees which parted him from the space wall. Perhaps there might be a break somewhere. It was a forlorn hope, but the best that offered. Wearily he stumbled on over the flowery grass. How long he had gone on along that almost imperceptibly curving line of border he could not have said, but after a timeless interval of gray solitude he gradually became aware that a tiny rustling and whispering among the leaves had been growing louder by degrees for some time. He looked up. In and out amongst the trees which bordered that solid wall of nothingness little indistinguishable figures were flitting. The tree-men had returned. Queerly grateful for their presence, he went on a bit more cheerfully, paying no heed to their timid dartings to and fro, for Smith was wise in the ways of wild life. Presently, when they saw how little heed he paid them, they began to grow bolder, their whispers louder. 
and among those rustling voices he thought he was beginning to catch threads of familiarity. Now and again a word reached his ears that he seemed to recognize, lost amidst the gibberish of their speech. He kept his head down and his hands quiet, plodding along with a cunning stillness that began to bear results. From the corner of his eye he could see that a little dark tree-man had darted out from cover and paused midway between bush and tree to inspect the queer tall stranger. Nothing happened to this daring venturer, and soon another risked a pause in the open to stare at the quiet walker among the trees. In a little while a small crowd of the tree-people was moving slowly parallel with his course, staring with all the avid curiosity of wild things at Smith's plodding figure, and among them the rustling of whispers grew louder. Presently the ground dipped down into a little hollow ringed with trees. It was a bit darker here than it had been on the higher level, and as he went down the slope of its side he saw that among the underbrush which filled it were cunningly hidden huts twined together out of the living bushes. Obviously the hollow was a tiny village where the tree-folk dwelt. He was surer of this when they began to grow bolder as he went down into the dimness of the place. The whispers shrilled a little, and the boldest among his watchers ran almost at his elbow, twittering their queer, broken speech in hushed syllables whose familiarity still bothered him with its haunting echo of words he knew. When he had reached the center of the hollow, he became aware that the little folk had spread out in a ring to surround him. Wherever he looked, their small, anxious faces and staring eyes confronted him. He grinned to himself and came to a halt waiting gravely. None of them seemed quite brave enough to constitute himself spokesman, but among several a hurried whispering broke out in which he caught the words thag and danger and beware. He recognized the meaning of these words without placing in his mind their origins in some tongue he knew. He knit his sun-bleached brows and concentrated harder, striving to wrest from that curious murmuring whisper some hint of its original root. He had a smattering of more tongues than he could have counted offhand, and it was hard to place these scattered words among any one speech. But the word thag had a sound like that of the very ancient dryland tongue, which upon Mars is considered at once the oldest and the most uncouth of all the planet's languages. And with that clue to guide him, he presently began to catch other syllables which were remotely like syllables from the dryland speech. They were almost unrecognizable, far, far more ancient than the very oldest versions of the tongue he had ever heard repeated, almost primitive in their crudity and simplicity, and for a moment the sheerest awe came over him as he realized the significance of what he listened to. The dryland race today is a handful of semi-brutes, degenerate from the ages of past time when they were a mighty people at the apex of an almost forgotten glory. That day is millions of years gone now, too far in the past to have record, save in the vaguest folklore. Yet here was a people who spoke the rudiments of that race's tongue, as it must have been spoken in the race's dim beginnings, perhaps a million years earlier even than that immemorial time of their triumph. The reeling of millenniums set Smith's mind a-whirl with the effort at compassing their span. There was another connotation in the speaking of that tongue by these timid bush-dwellers, too. 
It must mean that the forgotten Wizard King Ilar had peopled his sinister twilight land with the ancestors of today's dryland dwellers. If they shared the same tongue, they must share the same lineage, and humanity's remorseless adaptability had done the rest. It had been no kinder here than in the outside world, where the ancient plainsmen who had roamed Mars's green prairies had dwindled with their dying plains, degenerating at last into a shrunken, leather-skinned bestiality. For here that same race root had declined into these tiny, slinking creatures with their dusky skins and great staring eyes, and their voices that never rose above a whisper. What tragedies must lie behind that gradual degeneration? All about him the whispers still ran. He was beginning to suspect that through countless ages of hiding and murmuring those voices must have lost the ability to speak aloud, and he wondered with a little inward chill what terror it was which had transformed a free and fearless people into these tiny wild things whispering in the underbrush. The little anxious voices had shrilled into vehemence now, all of them chattering together in their queer, soft, rustling whispers. Looking back later upon that timeless space he had passed in the hollow, Smith remembered it as some curious nightmare, dimness and tapestried blurring and a hush like death over the whole twilight land and the timid voices whispering, whispering eloquent with terror and warning. He groped back among his memories and brought forth a phrase or two he remembered from long ago, an archaic rendering of the immemorial tongue they spoke. It was the simplest version he could remember of the complex speech now used, but he knew that to them it must sound fantastically strange. Instinctively he whispered as he spoke it, feeling like an actor in a play as he mouthed the ancient idiom. I... I cannot understand... Speak more slowly. A torrent of words greeted this rendering of their tongue. Then there was a great deal of hushing and hissing, and presently two or three between them began laboriously to recite an involved speech, one syllable at a time. Always two or more shared the task. Never in his converse with them did he address anyone directly. Ages of terror had bred all directness out of them. Thag, they said. Thag the terrible. Thag the omnipotent. Thag the unescapable. Beware of Thag. For a moment Smith stood quiet, grinning down at them despite himself. There must not be too much of intelligence left among this branch of the race either, for surely such a warning was superfluous. Yet they had mastered their agonies of timidity to give it. All virtue could not yet have been bred out of them then. They still had kindness and a sort of desperate courage rooted deep in fear. What is Thag? he managed to inquire, voicing the archaic syllables uncertainly, and they must have understood the meaning if not the phraseology, for another spate of whispered tumult burst from the clustering tribe. Then, as before, several took up the task of answering. Thag Thag, the end and the beginning, the center of creation. When Thag breathes, the world trembles. The earth was made for Thag's dwelling place. All things are Thag's. Oh, beware, beware! This much he pieced together out of their diffuse whisperings, catching up the fragments of words he knew and fitting them into the pattern. 
What—what is the danger? he managed to ask. Thag hungers. Thag must be fed. It is we who feed him, but there are times when he desires other food than us. It is then he sends his priestess forth to lure food in. Oh, beware of Thag! You mean, then, that she, the priestess, brought me in for food? A chorus of grave murmuring affirmatives. Then why did she leave me? There is no escape from Thag. Thag is the center of creation. All things are Thag's. When he calls, you must answer. When he hungers, he will have you. Beware of Thag. Smith considered that for a moment in silence. In the main, he felt confident that he had understood their warning correctly, and he had little reason to doubt that they knew whereof they spoke. Thag might not be the center of the universe, but if they said he could call a victim from anywhere in the land, Smith was not disposed to doubt it. The priestess's willingness to let him leave her unhindered, yes, even her scornful laughter as he looked back told the same story. Whatever Thag might be, his power in this land could not be doubted. He made up his mind suddenly what he must do, and turned to the breathlessly waiting little folk. Which way lies Thag? he asked. A score of dark, thin arms pointed. Smith turned his head speculatively toward the spot they indicated. In this changeless twilight all sense of direction had long since left him, but he marked the line as well as he could by the formation of the trees, then turned to the little people with a ceremonious farewell rising to his lips. My thanks for— He began to be interrupted by a chorus of whispering cries of protest. They seemed to sense his intention, and their pleadings were frantic. A panicked anxiety for him glowed upon every little terrified face turned up to his, and their eyes were wide with protest and terror. Helplessly, he looked down. I... I must go, he tried stumblingly to say. My only chance is to take Thag unawares before he sends for me. He could not know if they understood. Their chattering went on undiminished, and they even went so far as to lay tiny hands on him, as if they would prevent him by force from seeking out the terror of their lives. No, no, no! they wailed murmurously. You do not know what it is you seek. You do not know Thag. Stay here. Beware of Thag. A little prickling of unease went down Smith's back as he listened. Thag must be very terrible indeed if even half this alarm had foundation, and to be quite frank with himself he would greatly have preferred to remain here in the hidden quiet of the hollow with its illusion of shelter for as long as he was allowed to stay. But he was not of the stuff that yields very easily to its own terrors, and hope burned strongly in him still. So he squared his broad shoulders and turned resolutely in the direction the tree-folk had indicated. When they saw that he meant to go, their protests sank to a wail of bitter grieving. With that sound moaning behind him, he went up out of the hollow, like a man setting forth to the music of his own dirge. A few of the bravest went with him a little way, flitting through the underbrush and darting from tree to tree in a timidity so deeply ingrained that even when no immediate peril threatened, they dared not go openly through the twilight. Their presence was comforting to Smith as he went on. A futile desire to help the little terror-ridden tribe was rising in him, 
a useless gratitude for their warning and their friendliness, their genuine grieving at his departure, and their odd paradoxical bravery even in the midst of hereditary terror. But he knew that he could do nothing for them, when he was not at all sure he could even save himself. Something of their panic had communicated itself to him, and he advanced with a sinking in the pit of his stomach. Fear of the unknown is so poignant a thing, feeding on its own terror, that he found his hands beginning to shake a little and his throat going dry as he went on. The rustling and whispering among the bushes dwindled as his followers one by one dropped away, the bravest staying the longest, but even they failing in courage as Smith advanced steadily in the direction from which all their lives they had been taught to turn their faces. Presently he realized that he was alone once more. He went on more quickly, anxious to come face to face with this horror of the twilight and dispel at least the fearfulness of its mystery. The silence was like death. Not a breeze stirred the leaves, and the only sound was his own breathing, the heavy thud of his own heart. Somehow he felt sure that he was coming nearer to his goal. The hush seemed to confirm it. He loosened the force-gun at his thigh. In that changeless twilight the ground was sloping down once more into a broader hollow. He descended slowly, every sense alert for danger, not knowing if Thag was beast or human or elemental, visible or invisible. The trees were beginning to thin. He knew that he had almost reached his goal. He paused at the edge of the last line of trees. A clearing spread out before him at the bottom of the hollow, quiet in the dim, translucent air. He could focus directly upon no outlines anywhere for the tapestried blurring of the place. But when he saw what stood in the very center of the clearing, he stopped dead still, like one turned to stone, and a shock of utter cold went chilling through him. Yet he could not have said why. For in the clearing center stood the Tree of Life. He had met the symbol too often in patterns and designs not to recognize it, but here that fabulous thing was living, growing, actually springing up from a rooted firmness in the spangled grass as any tree might spring. Yet it could not be real. Its thin brown trunk of no recognizable substance, smooth and gleaming, mounted in the traditional spiral, its twelve fantastically curving branches arched delicately outward from the central stem. It was bare of leaves. No foliage masked the serpentine brown spiral of the trunk. But at the tip of each symbolic branch flowered a blossom of bloody rose, so vivid he could scarcely focus his dazzled eyes upon them. This tree, alone of all objects in the dim land, was sharply distinct to the eye. Terribly distinct. Remorselessly clear. No words can describe the amazing menace that dwelt among its branches. Smith's flesh crept as he stared, yet he could not, for all his staring, make out why peril was so eloquent there. To all appearances here stood only a fabulous symbol, miraculously come to life. Yet danger breathed out from it so strongly that Smith felt the hair lifting on his neck as he stared. It was no ordinary danger. A nameless, choking, paralyzed panic was swelling in his throat as he gazed upon the perilous beauty of the tree. Somehow the arches and curves of its branches seemed to limb a pattern so dreadful that his heart beat faster as he gazed upon it. But he could not guess why, though somehow the answer was hovering just out of reach of his conscious mind.
From that first glimpse of it his instincts shuddered like a shying stallion, yet reason still looked in vain for an answer. Nor was the tree merely a vegetable growth. It was alive, terribly, ominously alive. He could not have said how he knew that, for it stood motionless in its empty clearing, not a branch trembling, yet in its immobility more awfully vital than any animate thing. The very sight of it woke in Smith an insane urging to fight, to put worlds between himself and this inexplicably dreadful thing. Crazy impulses stirred in his brain, coming to insane birth at the calling of the tree's peril. The desperate need to shut out the sight of that thing that was blasphemy, to put out his own sight rather than gaze longer upon the perilous grace of its branches, to slit his own throat that he might not need to dwell in the same world which housed so frightful a sight as the tree. All this was a mad battering in his brain. The strength of him was enough to isolate it in a far corner of his consciousness, where it seethed and shrieked half-heated, while he turned the cool control which the spaceway's life had taught him to the solution of this urgent question. But even so, his hand was moist and shaking on his gun-butt, and the breath rasped in his dry throat. Why? he asked himself in a determined groping after steadiness, should the mere sight of a tree, even so fabulous a one as this, rouse that insane panic in the gazer? What peril could dwell invisibly in a tree so frightful that the living horror of it could drive a man mad with the very fact of its unseen presence? He clenched his teeth hard and stared resolutely at that terrible beauty in the clearing fighting down the sick panic that rose in his throat as his eyes forced themselves to dwell upon the tree. Gradually the revulsion subsided. After a nightmare of striving he mustered the strength to force it down far enough to allow reason's entry once more. Sternly holding down that frantic terror under the surface of consciousness he stared resolutely at the tree, and he knew that this was Thag. It could be nothing else for surely two such dreadful things could not dwell in one land. It must be Thag, and he could understand now the immemorial terror in which the tree-folk held it, but he did not yet grasp in what way it threatened them physically. The inexplicable dreadfulness of it was a menace to the mind's very existence, but surely a rooted tree, however terrible to look at, could wield little actual danger. As he reasoned, his eyes were seeking restlessly among the branches, searching for the answer to their dreadfulness. After all, this thing wore the aspect of an old pattern, and in that pattern there was nothing dreadful. The tree of life had made up the design upon that well-top in Ilar, through whose shadows he had entered here, and nothing in that bronze grillwork had roused terror. Then why? What? living menace dwelt invisibly among these branches to twist them into curves of horror. A fragment of old verse drifted through his mind as he stared in perplexity. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And for the first time the true significance of a fearful symmetry broke upon him. Truly a more than human agency must have arched these subtle curves so delicately into dreadfulness, into such an awful beauty that the very sight of it made those atavistic terrors he was so sternly holding down leap in a gibbering terror. A tremor rippled over the tree. 
Smith froze rigid, staring with startled eyes. No breath of wind had stirred through the clearing, but the tree was moving with a slow, serpentine grace, writhing its branches leisurely in a horrible travesty of voluptuous enjoyment. And upon their tips the blood-red flowers were spreading like cobras' hoods, swelling and stretching their petals out and glowing with a hue so eye-piercingly vivid that it transcended the bounds of color and blazed forth like a pure light. But it was not toward Smith that they stirred. They were arching out from the central trunk toward the far side of the clearing. After a moment Smith tore his eyes away from the indescribably dreadful flexibility of those branches and looked to see the cause of their writhing. A blaze of luminous white had appeared among the trees across the clearing. The priestess had returned. He watched her pacing slowly toward the tree walking with a precise and delicate grace as liquidly lovely as the motion of the tree. Her fabulous hair swung down about her in a swaying robe that rippled at every step away from the moon-white beauty of her body. Straight toward the tree she paced, and all the blossoms glowed more vividly at her nearness, the branches stretching toward her, rippling with eagerness. Priestess though she was, he could not believe that she was going to come within touch of that tree the very sight of which roused such a panic instinct of revulsion in every fiber of him. But she did not swerve or slow in her advance. Walking delicately over the flowery grass, arrogantly luminous in the twilight, so that her body was the center and focus of any landscape she walked in, she neared her horribly eager god. Now she was under the tree and its trunk had writhed down over her, and she was lifting her arms like a girl to her lover. With a gliding slowness the flame-tipped branches slid round her. In that incredible embrace she stood immobile for a long moment, the tree arching down with all its curling limbs, the girl straining upward, her head thrown back, and the mantle of her hair swinging free of her body as she lifted her face to the quivering blossoms. The branches gathered her closer in their embrace. Now the blossoms arched near, curving down all about her, touching her very gently, twisting their blazing faces toward the focus of her moon-white body. One poised directly above her face, trembled, brushed her mouth lightly, and the tree's tremor ran unbroken through the body of the girl it clasped. The incredible dreadfulness of that embrace was suddenly more than Smith could bear. All his terrors, crushed down with so stern a self-control, without warning burst all bounds and rushed over him in a flood of blind revulsion. A whimper choked up in his throat, and quite involuntarily he swung round and plunged into the shielding trees, hands to his eyes in a futile effort to blot out the sight of lovely horror behind him whose vividness was burnt upon his very brain. Heedlessly he blundered through the trees, no thought in his terror-blank mind save the necessity to run, run, run until he could run no more. He had given up all attempt at reason and rationality. He no longer cared why the beauty of the tree was so dreadful. He only knew that until all space lay between him and its symmetry he must run and run and run. What brought that frenzied madness to an end he never knew. When sanity returned to him, he was lying face down on the flower-spangled sward in a silence so deep that his ears ached with its heaviness. The grass was cool against his cheek. For a moment he fought the backflow of knowledge into his emptied mind. 
When it came, the memory of that horror he had fled from, he started up with a wild thing's swiftness and glared around pale-eyed into the unchanging dusk. He was alone. Not even a rustle in the leaves spoke of the tree-folk's presence. For a moment he stood there alert, wondering what had roused him, wondering what would come next. He was not left long in doubt. The answer was shrilling, very, very faintly through that aching quiet an infinitesimally tiny, unthinking, far-away murmur which yet pierced his eardrums with the sharpness of tiny needles. Breathless he strained in listening. Swiftly the sound grew louder. It deepened upon the silence, sharpened and shrilled until the thin blade of it was vibrating in the center of his innermost brain. And still it grew swelling louder and louder through the twilight world in cadences that were rounding into a queer sort of music and taking on such an unbearable sweetness that Smith pressed his hands over his ears in a futile attempt to shut the sound away. He could not. It rang in steadily deepening intensities through every fiber of his being, piercing him with thousands of tiny music blades that quivered in his very soul with intolerable beauty and he thought he sensed in the piercing strength of it a vibration of queer, unnameable power far mightier than anything ever generated by man, the dim echo of some cosmic dynamo's hum. The sound grew sweeter as it strengthened, with a queer, inexplicable sweetness unlike any music he had ever heard before, rounder and fuller and more complete than any melody made up of separate notes. Stronger and stronger he felt the certainty that it was the song of some mighty power, humming and throbbing and deepening through the twilight until the whole dim land was one trembling reservoir of sound that filled his entire consciousness with its throbbing, driving out all other thoughts and realizations, until he was no more than a shell that vibrated in answer to the calling. For it was a calling. No one could listen to that intolerable sweetness without knowing the necessity to seek its source. Remotely, in the back of his mind, Smith remembered the tree-folk's warning. When Thag calls, you must answer. Not consciously did he recall it, for all his consciousness was answering the siren humming in the air, and scarcely realizing that he moved, he had turned toward the source of that calling stumbling blindly over the flowery sward with no thought in his music-brimmed mind but the need to answer that lovely power-vibrant summoning. Past him, as he went on, moved other shapes, little and dark-skinned and ecstatic, gripped like himself in the hypnotic melody. The tree-folk had forgotten even their inbred fear at Thag's calling, and walked boldly through the open twilight, lost in the wonder of the song. Smith went on with the rest, deaf and blind to the land around him, alive to one thing only, that summons from the siren tune. Unrealizingly he retraced the course of his frenzied flight past the trees and bushes he had blundered through, down the slope that led to the tree's hollow, through the thinning of the underbrush to the very edge of the last line of foliage which marked the valley's rim. By now the calling was so unbearably intense, so intolerably sweet, that somehow in its very strength it set free a part of his dazed mind as it passed the limits of audible things and soared into ecstasies which no senses bound. And though it gripped him ever closer in its magic, a sane part of his brain was waking into realization. 
For the first time alarm came back into his mind, and by slow degrees the world returned about him. He stared stupidly at the grass moving by under his pacing feet. He lifted a dragging head and saw that the trees no longer rose about him, that a twilight clearing stretched away on all sides toward the forest rim which circled it, that the music was singing from some source so near that, that, the tree. The terror leaped within him like a wild thing. The tree, quivering with unbearable clarity in the thick, dim air, writhed above him, blossoms blazing with bloody radiance, and every branch vibrant and undulant to the tune of that unholy song. Then he was aware of the lovely, luminous whiteness of the priestess swaying forward under the swaying limbs, her hair rippling back from the loveliness of her as she moved. Choked and frenzied with unreasoning terror, he mustered every effort that was in him to turn, to run again like a madman out of that dreadful hollow, to hide himself under the weight of all space from the menace of the tree. And all the while he fought, all the while panic drummed like mad in his brain. His relentless body plodded on straight toward the hideous loveliness of that siren singer towering above him. From the first he had felt subconsciously that it was Thag who called, and now, in the very center of that ocean of vibrant power, he knew. Gripped in the music's magic, he went on. All over the clearing other hypnotized victims were advancing slowly with mechanical steps and wide frantic eyes as the tree-folk came helplessly to their god's calling. He watched a group of little dusky sacrifices pace step by step nearer to the tree's vibrant branches. The priestess came forward to meet them with outstretched arms. He saw her take the foremost gently by the hands. Unbelieving, hypnotized with horrified incredulity, he watched her lead the rigid little creature forward under the fabulous tree whose limbs yearned downward like hungry snakes, the great flowers glowing with avid color. He saw the branches twist out and lengthen toward the sacrifice, quivering with eagerness. Then, with a tiger's leap, they darted, and the victim was swept out of the priestess's guiding hands up into the branches that darted round like tangled snakes in a clot that hid him for an instant from view. Smith heard a high, shuddering wail ripple out from that knot of struggling branches, a dreadful cry that held such an infinity of purest horror and understanding that he could not but believe that Thag's victims in the moment of their doom must learn the secret of his horror. After that one frightful cry came silence. In an instant the limbs fell apart again from emptiness. The little savage had melted like smoke among their writhing too quickly to have been devoured, more as if he had been snatched up into another dimension in the instant the hungry limbs hid him. Flame-tipped, avid, they were dripping now toward another victim as the priestess paced serenely forward. And still Smith's rebellious feet were carrying him on, nearer and nearer the writhing peril that towered over his head. The music shrilled like pain. Now he was so close that he could see the hungry flower-mouths in terrible detail as they faced round toward him. The limbs quivered and poised like cobras, reached out with a snakish lengthening down inexorably toward his shuddering helplessness. The priestess was turning her calm white face towards his. Those arcs and changing curves of the branches as they neared were stretching lines of pure horror whose meaning he still could not understand. 
save that they deepened in dreadfulness as he neared. For the last time that urgent wonder burned up in his mind. Why? Why so simple a thing as this fabulous tree should be infused with an indwelling terror strong enough to send his innermost soul frantic with revulsion? For the last time, because in that trembling instant as he waited for their touch, as the music brimmed up with unbearable brain-wrenching intensity, in that one last moment before the flower-mouth seized him, he saw, he understood. With eyes opened at last by the instant's ultimate horror, he saw the real thag. Dimly he knew that until now the thing that had been so frightful that his eyes had refused to register its existence, his brain to acknowledge the possibility of such dreadfulness. It had literally been too terrible to see, though his instinct knew the presence of infinite horror. But now, in the grip of that mad hypnotic song, in the instant before unbearable terror enfolded him, his eyes opened to full sight, and he saw. That tree was only Thag's outline, sketched three-dimensionally upon the twilight. Its dreadfully curving branches had been no more than Thag's barest contours, yet even they had made his very soul sick with intuitive revulsion. But now, seeing the true horror, his mind was too numb to do more than register its presence. Thag hovering monstrously between earth and heaven, billowing and surging up there in the translucent twilight, tethered to the ground by the tree's bending stem and reaching ravenously after the hypnotized fodder that his calling brought helpless into his clutches. One by one he snatched them up one by one absorbed them into the great unseeable horror of his being. That, then, was the reason why they vanished so instantaneously, sucked into the concealing folds of a thing too dreadful for normal eyes to see. The priestess was pacing forward. Above her the branches arched and leaned. Caught in a timeless paralysis of horror, Smith stared upward into the enormous bulk of Thag while the music hummed intolerably in his shrinking brain. Thag, the monstrous thing from darkness called up by Ilar those long-forgotten times when Mars was a green planet. Foolishly his brain wandered among the ramifications of what had happened so long ago that time itself had forgotten, refusing to recognize the fate that was upon himself. He knew a tingle of respect for the ages-dead wizard who had dared command a being like this to his services. This vast, blind, hovering thing, ravenous for human flesh, indistinguishable even now save in those terrible outlines that sent panic leaping through him with every motion of the tree's fearful symmetry. All this flashed through his dazed mind in the one blinding instant of understanding. Then the priestess's luminous whiteness swam up before his hypnotized stare. Her hands were upon him, gently guiding his mechanical footsteps, very gently leading him forward, into... into... The writhing branches struck downward, straight for his face, and in one flashing leap the moment's infinite horror galvanized him out of his paralysis. Why, he could not have said. It is not given to many men to know the ultimate essentials of all horror, concentrated into one fundamental unit. To most men it would have had the same paralyzing effect up to the very instant of destruction. But in Smith there must have been a bedrock of subtle violence, an unyielding, inflexible vehemence upon which the structure of his whole life was reared. Few men have it. 
and when that ultimate intensity of terror struck the basic flint of him, reaching down through mind and soul into the deepest depths of his being, it struck a spark from that inflexible barbarian buried at the roots of him which had force enough to shock him out of his stupor. In the instant of release his hand swept like an unloosed spring of its own volition straight for the butt of his power-gun. He was dragging it free as the tree's branches snatched him from the priestess's hands. The fire-colored blossoms burnt his flesh as they closed round him, the hot branches gripping like the touch of ravenous fingers. The whole tree was hot and throbbing with a dreadful travesty of fleshly life as it whipped him aloft into the hovering bulk of incarnate horror above. In the instantaneous upward leap of the flower-tipped limbs, Smith fought like a demon to free his gun-hand from the gripping coils. For the first time, Thag knew rebellion in his very clutches, and the ecstasy of that music which had dinned in Smith's ears so strongly that by now it seemed almost silence was swooping down in a long arc into wrath, and the branches tightened with hot insistency, lifting the rebellious offering into Thag's monstrous, indescribable bulk. But even as they rose, Smith was twisting in their clutch to maneuver his hand into position from which he could blast that undulant tree-trunk into nothingness. He knew intuitively the futility of firing up into Thag's imponderable mass. Thag was not of the world he knew. The flame-blast might well be harmless to that mighty hoverer in the twilight. But at the tree's root, where Thag's essential being merged from the imponderable to the material, rooting in earthly soil. He should be vulnerable if he were vulnerable at all. Struggling in the tight, hot coils, breathing the nameless essence of horror, Smith fought to free his hand. The music that had rung so long in his ears was changing as the branches lifted him higher, losing its melody and merging by swift degrees into a hum of vast and vibrant power that deepened in intensity as the limbs drew him upward into Thag's monstrous bulk, the singing force of a thing mightier than any dynamo ever built. Blinded and dazed by the force, thundering through every atom of his body, he twisted his hand in one last convulsive effort, and fired. He saw the flame leap in a dazzling gush straight for the trunk below. It struck. He heard the sizzle of annihilated matter. He saw the trunk quiver convulsively from the very roots, and the whole fabulous tree shook once with an ominous tremor. But before that tremor could shiver up the branches to him, the hum of the living dynamo which was closing round his body shrilled up arcs of pure intensity into a thundering silence. Then, without a moment's warning, the world exploded. So instantaneously did all this happen that the gun-blast's roar had not yet echoed into the silence before a mightier sound than the brain could bear exploded outward from the very center of his own being. Before the awful power of it everything reeled into a shaken oblivion, he felt himself falling. A queer, penetrating light shining upon his closed eyes roused Smith by degrees into wakefulness again. He lifted heavy lids and stared upward into the unwinking eye of Mars's racing nearer moon. He lay there, blinking dazedly for a while, before enough of memory returned to rouse him. Then he sat up painfully, for every fiber of him ached, and stared round on a scene of the wildest destruction. 
he lay in the midst of a wide, rough circle which held nothing but powdered stone. About it, rising raggedly in the moving moonlight, the blocks of time-forgotten Ilar loomed. But they were no longer piled upon one another in a rough travesty of the city they once shaped. Some force mightier than any of man's explosives seemed to have hurled them with such violence from their beds that their very atoms had been disrupted by the force of it, crumbling them into dust. And in the very center of the havoc lay Smith, unhurt. He stared in bewilderment about the moonlit ruins. In the silence it seemed to him that the very air still quivered in shocked vibrations. And as he stared he realized that no force save one could have wrought such destruction upon the ancient stones. Nor was there any explosive known to man which would have wrought this strange pulverizing havoc upon the blocks of Ilar. That force had hummed unbearably through the living dynamo of Thag, a force so powerful that space itself had bent to enclose it. Suddenly he realized what must have happened. Not Ilar, but Thag himself had warped the walls of space to enfold the twilight world, and nothing but Thag's living power could have held it so bent to segregate the little terror-ridden land inviolate. Then, when the tree's roots parted, Thag's anchorage in the material world failed, and in one great gust of unthinkable energy the warped space walls had ceased to bend. Those arches of solid space had snapped back into their original pattern hurling the land and all its dwellers into—into—his mind balked in the effort to picture what must have happened, into what ultimate dimension those denizens must have vanished. Only himself, enfolded deep in Thag's very essence, the intolerable power of the explosion had not touched. So when the warped space-curve ceased to be, and Thag's hold upon reality failed, he must have been dropped back out of the dissolving folds upon the spot where the tree had stood in the space-circled world, through that vanished world-floor into the spot he had been snatched from in the instant of the dim land's dissolution. It must have happened after the terrible force of the explosion had spent itself, before Thag dared move even himself through the walls of changing energy into his own far land again. Smith sighed and lifted a hand to his throbbing head, rising slowly to his feet. What time had elapsed he could not guess, but he must assume that the patrol still searched for him. Wearily he set out across the circle of havoc toward the nearest shelter which Ilar offered. The dust rose in ghostly moonlit clouds under his feet. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Will. Hey, I'm Trish. Oh, and we're going to talk about uh, The Tree of Life by uh, C.L. Moore, first published in Weird Tales, October 1936. Um, this is a, a very good issue of uh, Weird Tales. Um, in fact, I've talked about what a good issue this is several times before, but uh, let me just go through the list of stories and poems that are in here um, so you can see why I think actually 1936 was just a very good year in Weird Tales. Um, to see why this is so good. How many podcasts have I done based on stories based on this issue? So uh, we've got a scene from The Isle of the Dead on the cover, um, which is uh, by Lord Arthur, uh, sorry, Lloyd Arthur Eschbach. I have not done a story on that uh, as a podcast. 
Um, but the next poem that's listed, The Lost Temple of Xanthus, I've done one on that, and I'm going to read that today, I hope. Uh, the Opener of the Way by Robert Block. Everybody should be vaguely familiar with that guy. Uh, mm-hmm. There's another poem called Witch Burning by Mary Elizabeth Councilman, which I'm sure I've done with my students at some point. Uh, the Lost Door by Dorothy Quick. haven't done a podcast on that yet, but Dorothy Quick is uh, a very fascinating figure for me. Uh, when I found out that she was a childhood friend of Mark Twain and that they were uh, friends while she was growing up and becoming a writer, um, she sort of sought him out on a, a transatlantic cruise and um, they became f- fast friends during the cruise. And then uh, he sent her like a, I think it was a giraffe, or like a stuffed giraffe or something. And um, later in life. Like a real one? Like a, yeah, like a toy. <laughs> <laughs> as far as oh, I know, like a, okay. he, he was not, not a great not hunter. Like a taxidermy. No, 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 not a full size. Um, but anyways, she she has a fascinating uh, career as a Weird Tales uh, poet, and I think um, she she also wrote stories. Um, we've got an Earl Pierce Jr. story in here, which I'm not familiar with. We've got the Tree of Life by C.L. Moore, which I am now familiar with. Um, Red Nails, the final installment of Red Nails by Robert uh-huh. Howard. Um, and mm, that's his mm. last story. Um, while he's, uh, you know, th- this is the story. This is the issue in which the audience is informed, or the readership is informed, that Robert e. Howard has killed himself. Um, and this is the final Conan story that's published while he's sort of alive, <laughs> sort of alive. Um, and then the very next thing in the issue is a poem by Robert H. Barlow. A uh, friend of H.P. Lovecraft, he, he was supposed to have been his executor, um, uh, c- entitled R.E.H., which is a poem in tribute to Robert E. Howard. It's a wonderful poem. Um, it basically translates the life of Howard into the life of Conan, and then it uses that as a metaphor. It's just a sonnet, but it's beautiful. Um, the Doors of Death by Arthur B. Waltermeyer, a guy I'd never heard of. The Secret of Kralitz by Henry Cutner. I've I've heard that. It's I think on Librivox. And then we've got just for uh, a top it top it all off. It's got an Arthur Conan Doyle uh reprint in there too. Um not a um uh Sherlock Holmes, but one of his weird stories which he wrote a lot of as well. So um that's pretty good. A pretty good issue. You got Robert E. Howard, you got Robert Block, you've got uh Barlow, Cutner, Conan Doyle, C.L. Moore, Dorothy Quick. You got a lot for your money if you bought this issue in 1936. A a bargain at twice the price. Right? You can kind of see why um, people think of this magazine as a um, as a sort of a special kind of magazine that sort of stands out as opposed to the shadow or motor stories or love and romance or true detective or any of those uh, sort of other mags. This mag has something special. Um, and even when you've got a story like this one, which I don't think is the greatest story ever, it's still really worthy of reading. Um, so, that's my opening. You guys got some initial thoughts? I do. Go for it, So, I've, I've read a, a number of Northwest stories before. Shamblow, Dust of Gods, 
The Cold Grey God. This is the last in the sequence. I'd never read this one before. And I found it fascinating from a world building point of view to basically how it teases out a lot more about the past of the Martian Drylanders mm-hmm. in the in the personage of of this creature that's basically influenced their civilization and helped in a sense to destroy Mars. I, I at least that's the, maybe the impression I'm bringing up, mm-hmm. bringing along that Mars didn't die quite naturally, but this creature's malign influence helped push over the edge, which makes me think of the John Carter movie, for example, or Larry Niven's rainbow Mars, where a tree basically starts sucking up the life of uh, the entire planet. And, for the for not even for the for technically for the best of reasons, but that just goes completely wrong here. It's just a malign entity, extra dimensional, which makes me think of things like Lovecraft, kind of like something coming out of a dark dimension to basically mm. corrupt the planet and its inhabitants, and and more throws in references to elves and diminishment of creatures in that sense, which makes makes me think of some of the number of stories we've done with elves, including King of the Elves just mm-hmm. just a couple of weeks ago, and that how this basically Northwest Smith, our our swashbuckling hero, winds up in a situation where he nearly gets sacrificed to this malign thing that's still infecting the planet. It's 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 great stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I wish I'd read this one sooner. Well, so the there are a lot of connections with other things. Uh, I think uh, uh, Paul was just kind of teasing some of that out. Uh, what Paul's comments uh, bring to mind for me um, uh, are uh, actually Philip Jose Farmer's uh, authorized Tarzan novel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a it's a Tarzan and the Dark Heart of Time or. Uh, uh, the Dark Heart of Time, a Tarzan novel, depending on uh, which version of it you have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, he goes into this, uh, you know, uncharted area in an unspecified part of Africa. And, uh, you know, there's this uh, crystal tree uh, that is like, just like changed the whole nature of the landscape. And there's this uh, civilization uh, built around it there. Uh, you see... Uh, uh, trees and a lot of different, um, uh, you know, uh, novels, series, this kind of thing. It's a pretty powerful symbol, I suppose. Um, but uh, I don't know what struck me about the story within the context of, uh, you know, C.L. Moore's canon is I just feel like, uh, you know, she's written maybe. Uh, four or five of these uh, uh, stories where you kind of go into a a pocket universe ruled Mm. by uh, a being that created the universe. And, uh, 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 you know, you go through this like, like long and elaborate sequence. And then the being is actually ultimately really easy to deal with. Like, (laughs) like this, like being that maybe destroyed Mars is like warping space time. Like, uh, Northwest Smith, you know, he gets out his gun and he shoots it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of like Cirello's jury when she faces a demon, the demon doesn't have a chance, even if it's a giant malign entity, there is a bit of anticlimactic to the actual final, confrontation that her, her heroes 
don't seem to struggle as much as you might think they might. I, that's a fair cop. Uh, Trish, what do you think? Um, right. This is uh, not my favorite um, uh, C.L. Moore story or even my favorite Northwest Smith story, which remains Chamblow, her mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I do think it's interesting. Uh, there are a lot of interesting points about this story, uh, um, which y'all all have touched on already, but also the fact that here he is again succumbing to the wiles of a woman. <laughs> Who's not Although a this woman, time he like at least Chambro. tries to resist yeah. initially. <laughs> um, but uh, but but yeah, with with the ending that you mentioned, that was uh, anticlimactic. We could talk about it more now or later, but. Um, uh, as an introduction to C.L. Moore, which it wasn't for me. I've read a lot of her stuff already. Um, uh, this isn't the one that I would put out to people as, here, try C.L. Moore. Mm-hmm. But it has some interesting points. It has the virtue of being public domain. <laughs> that is true. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah, we had a whole incident. I put Me pointing out to the guy who runs LibriVox that it's not public domain. Um, even though I, I put it up on my website, it's not actually uh, my hosting, so it's not my cop, you know. Um, I don't put up the PDF, I don't put up, but it's, it, I would have gone for Chamblot as well. Not that I'm as familiar as, it sounds like everybody's fairly familiar with Northwest Smith and C.L. Moore. Um, I'm less familiar. This is maybe my third reading of a C.L. Moore um, Northwest Smith story, and um, I like what she does with the language, but I, I agree that the like not very much happens in this story. There's very little happening. It's mostly description, and it's beautiful. Um, it's very Robert E. Howard-like, in fact. It's got um, the color and the emotion. It'd be very hard to film, <laughs> you know, this story, because it would be very short. What, let's let's just uh, talk through what actually happens. So at the very beginning of the story, we find out that uh, our hero is, um, I assume, crashed um, rather than hiding. It, uh, he's basically Han Solo, right? Everybody agrees to this. That's the yeah, unstated yes. Han Solo, thing. yeah, was was clearly based on people like Douglas Smith. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I was thinking if you were going to. Uh, uh, make the Adventures of Han Solo TV show. This is an episode, right? It's 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 the <laughs> it's a Mandalorian episode, right? It's just a, a uh, without Baby Yoda. Uh, yeah, indeed, without a Baby Yoda, and and therefore people and you know, there's no Chewie here. Uh, he he does have a Chewie. It's my understanding. Um, uh, guy starting with a Y name from Venus, but Yarrow? I wouldn't Yarrow. call him a Chewie. No, but he's, he's the he's the you know partner in crime, right? Yes. More so. pathetic than Chewie, though. Uh, wow. Chewie's pretty pathetic. No. <laughs> hey, wow. Listeners can respond to this episode by sending emails. To- that was a joke. Right. Though. Direct your comments on that to Jesse, not the rest of us. <laughs> there you go. Um, in any case, he's he's crashed, crashed in this uh, million-year-old city in the ruins. He's hiding out. The patrol planes are above him. 
Um, the patrol seems to be his version of the Empire, right? Uh, Tie fighters and uh, etc. And the, he's a smuggler. It doesn't say that in this particular one, but it's not really important. The important part he's hiding out, and then he investigates the the uh, well and discovers a crying lady who he immediately realizes is faking everything. Um, and then she says, help me, help me. And then she takes him for a walk. And eventually she goes away. He sees some tree, tree dwelling people. It all feels like it's in a pocket universe. And, uh, they're not tree dwellers exactly, but they're, they're in this, uh, jungle. Is that not, that's not the right word for it. I don't know. It's a, it's a. It's not like Mar- regular Mars in any case. And then um, they warn him. He figures out how to understand what they're saying by reaching back into his vocab book in his brain. And then uh, they warn him. And then he has more experiences. The lady comes back. Uh, and then the end. <laughs> right? Is that the whole story? Am I missing something? Uh, yeah, you're missing a bit at the end. Okay, um, give me give me. The lady more. calls comes back. The tree is calling to everyone around the lady sacrifices a few of the uh the uh <clears throat> forest people um and eventually northwest smith is caught up in the branches and uh as uh, will said shoots eventually through a monumental effort of will <laughs> northwest smith manages to Put out his gun and, and shoot the tree, and mm-hmm. then he's back. And he shoots it in the roots, right? Uh, I think so. Because he says he says uh, it would be obvious to shoot it. I mean, he doesn't say this, but something like the it would be the branches are where everybody's focused, but really, um, it's underneath. It's deep deep inside, and it's really it's 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 very metaphorical. There's. Mm-hmm. Like um, it's a dream sequence, basically the whole thing, right? And that's why when I was listening to it the, the several times I did, and reading it on the page, I'm like, no, no, shoots in the trunk. He shoots saw the, in the flame leap in, in a gassing, dazzling gush straight for the trunk below. It struck. He heard the sizzle of annihilated matter. He saw the trunk quiver convulsively from the very roots. So, so what? No, so he shot in like the lower portion of the yeah, trunk. Yeah, because because that's where it really it's like a the tree of life that it is, right? Is sort of a that's the mushroom expression of the th- thing that is the thag. 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 I mean, it's a it's so much it's so much like a Robert E. Howard story in that respect. If you take away the um, the uh, blaster. Um, and give him a sword. This is like there was an evil wizard. Uh, it ruins the people of the place. I mean, it's it's half of Robert E. Howard's stories. There's evil wizard. Conan needs to come in there and do some sh- do some chopping. Um, fights a god and then walks away clean. And oh, and there's a lady, usually uh, a girl to be saved and a girl uh, that's evil, right? And who's jealous of Conan's girlfriend or whoever it is. Here it's just the one girl and then there's the the elf i mean a lot of this also reminded me of the sort of the least my least favorite part of the uh, game of thrones when they're spending time with those the people of the forest you remember that the tv show what i'm talking about anybody yes yes okay yeah um and they have a tree of life there right that's the old religion that's represented 
Um, in the north, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but there it's not a negative force exactly. It's a positive force, I guess. It's as little. So that mystical stuff from Game of Thrones didn't do much for me. But um, that's, uh, and that is not to cast dispersions on this story for what it's doing. Um, but rather, I'm just saying that that was not the best part of Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, but uh, it's very strange. This is a really long story for the amount of activity that happens, right? In the, if if we looked at um, Red Nails, um, which is also in this issue, the third part of the serial, right? That's got uh, a laser beam battle, a a tribal war. There's a, I mean, this is not all in the se- in that one segment, but this is a this is a an hour or so. To listen to in a, an hour or so to read it's not a 20 minute or half hour story but it, it feels very long because i i notice like the repetition the number of times she says words the same strange word again it just you know incredulity comes up three or incongruity comes up incredulous comes up right over and over and over and it's because it's almost like the way she's writing is she's uh, making it more ornate, and then she's um, coloring, coloring in, and then she makes it more ornate, and then she colors in, and so there's a lot of uh, how it feels rather than what you see. Right, right. Or, or, or what the yeah, what the characters are doing. Like for example, and still it grew, swelling louder and louder through the twilight world and cadences that were rounding into a queer sort of music and taking on such an unbearable sweetness that Smith pressed his hands over his ears in a futile attempt to shut the sound away. He could not. It rang instead steadily deepening intensities through every fiber of his being, piercing him with thousands of tiny music blades that quivered in his very soul with intolerable beauty. There's intolerable. And he thought he could sense in that piercing strength a vibration of queer and nameable power far mightier than anything ever generated by man. The dim echo of some cosmic dynamo's hum. Yep. So, yes, yeah, so as you say, there's not a lot that, that happens, but she she certainly turns on the vocab and on the... the I, purple prose is not necessarily a bad thing for me to say. She turns on the purple prose here to make you feel and sense and immerse yourself into what's happening to Smith in this relatively short uh, adventure, so to speak. Yeah, and in fact, that word ornate, I just noticed it on on the page here, right? That <laughs> she's, she is giving you the, the emotional, and it's funny because I'm not a C.L. Moore expert, but I've read more of her stuff, you know, than just this. And that's sort of how I feel about Chamblot, too, is that it's it's all about, you know, sort of dwelling in that feeling. And, uh, oh, God, the description of bodies, right? How uh, how her moonstone eyes, right? That's got to be in here at least four times. Mm-hmm. Right? Moonstone. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what color that is, but it does remind me of, <laughs> there's a book called The Moonstone. I think it's Wilkie Collins, right? Um, I, and I and she does that. She, uh, she, she at one point, Wind, uh, sorry, not Wind Wang and Smith, Northwest Smith um, throws uh, um back into his memory and he calls for us a bit of verse by William Blake, right? Yes. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. Oh, symmetry. Right? He's symmetry, yeah. Symmet- he says, uh, on my f- by the way, the narrator on this is my dead friend, Greg Marguerite. Oh. oh. 
Oh, oh, I, but I did come up with, uh, I was yesterday, um, uh, somebody who does scans was talking about how, uh, they miss the scans by this person. And, uh, they said, um, <laughs> the phrase they used, I'll just read the tweet here. Went lurking is a verb now used by people who only know each other via news groups. It can mean stop responding to emails or threads, also usable to describe people who have possibly died. So that's how I will now describe my friends who have died. They, quote-unquote, went lurking. <laughs> wow. And then Stephen Persing says, Where do they lurk? Under what circumstances do they stop lurking? This sounds like a story waiting to be written. And then I said, uh, No, they ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls. Oh, no, not no. Now they ro- ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls of the night winds and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nefren Ka in the sealed <laughs> and unknown valley of Hadoth by the, the Nile, at least for now. Oh, that's me referencing the outsider, <laughs> which I like to do whenever possible. <laughs> in any weird case, sight, um, weird sign up for you, Jesse. Huh? You know where I first heard about C.L. Moore? From where? Robert Robert Heinlein, because she gets because me- uh, Northwest Smith gets mentioned and Gerald Joy gets mentioned in Number of the Beast, and I wondered uh, who's you that? know I probably I probably had the same although I didn't remember that uh, everybody gets mentioned in that book right? Will you read that book? Right, I, I, I... no, I haven't, dude. You have not read Number of the Beast. No, is this the Heinlein novel I need to read that I haven't read? You need to read it not because it's a good book, but because it loves it's a farmer book, basically, right? Oh, okay. Am I wrong, Paul? No, you're absolutely right. I I I, I picked up and started reading a lot of stuff thanks on thanks to that book. It's basically here's what uh, Trish. Do you know this book? Uh, I do. Um, I it's not on my list of things. It's, it's to not a great book. <laughs> it's, it's not, not a great, great book. book. No, but <laughs> it's an interesting book because basically uh, uh, his brain went crazy, right? And then he said, "I'm going to do nostalgia," and he 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 has his characters build instead of building a rocket ship to go to the moon, they build a an interdimensional ship to travel to every dimension, all six hundred and sixty six of them, right? Wow, and some of them are Oz, and some of them are Barsoom, and some of them are—I'm sure Tarzan's in there. Uh, Gerald of Jory's got to show up at some point, right? Um, wow. And so, yeah, I remember reading it, and I'm like, wow, exactly. And I also realized this is not his best because I was reading everything by Heinlein, right? It's not his best, but I still liked it, which is pretty funny because I—I I, was—I was thinking about. Is there are there any Heinleins that I haven't read? And I think the list includes basically just his last one, Sail Beyond the Sunset, and all the ones that were after, you know, his death. But I've read everything else. And I, I still say, you know, you should, everyone should read Number of the Beast at some point because it's an interesting book because it has all those references. So uh, that is interesting. Wait, when did he write this? I want to say 80... 7980, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So this is really like, okay, okay. So this is really, he's like, yeah, I'm trying to revisit some feelings now that I'm old. And and also, nobody can stop, nobody can edit me. (laughs) Right, right, right. And I mean, characters of his own show up in the book. So it's very self indulgent. It's very incestuous and self indulgent. 
I, I, I think basically every character from all of his, you know, all of his books shows up. He's a, Lazarus, <laughs> I got the count, but Lazarus Long, right? right? He's got to be in there. Yeah. Mike, Mike, the computer from, from, uh, um, stop. yeah, from us, from, um, the moon, moon is a horse. Mistress. 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 Star from Glory Road shows up. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, I mean, it's not good that way, but but it definitely it's tour to me love on the track of a lot of other Except books. it's Tour de Heinlein, right? You get everybody. Everybody gets yeah. a, a, a road trip. And honestly, I really enjoyed reading it, even though it's a piece of junk in terms of, like, a good book. <laughs> I really enjoyed reading it because I was traveling to Europe at the time. And uh, I was like, "This is ins- an insane book, but it's okay because I'm I'm uh, living my life and also reading this book." <laughs> just a weird, like you can tell, is sort of like just it shouldn't exist the way it does because it's not really a novel. It's 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 almost like an exegesis uh, for her. The exegesis of Robert Heinlein, right? I mean. I lo- Where's Marissa when we need her? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And anyway, this is like to... this is like, yeah, that's like Heinlein's River World, basically. Yeah, yeah. Except yeah, River World, like like those books are thin. <laughs> that first one, anyways. Um, this is a big, fat, chunky book that breaks the barrier of what a paperback could be with a normal size font. In any case. Um, oh. <laughs> but, but anyway, yep. My Highline's responsible for me checking out C.L. Moore and Jarella mm. Jory and Northwest Smith and the Mark and um, Mimsy with the more Groves and lots of other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I, I, I still think Mimsy with the Groves is, is the best Moore Cutner story as a single story. I put it above Shamblow. What do you think, Trish? Um, I think it's uh, their best collaboration, certainly out of the ones that I've read, although I haven't read all of the collaborations. Um, uh, it probably has a bit more to think about um, uh, as science fictional concepts um, for, you know, toys from the future that are going to influence how children think and grow up and um so uh yeah it has it's i don't remember how how much i liked the language of it or not but the concepts were definitely interesting um Chamblou, uh is a really fun read um and i i think that um although the basic concept of you know watch out for women they may be more than they appear and they may be dangerous (laughs) (laughs) they're all femme fatales right um yeah i mean that basic concept isn't uh exactly original but i really loved how it was developed Mm. and how in that story he did not save himself his friend had to save him Mm. and at the end, he was quite a bit shaken by the experience, and it was obvious that uh, you know this was going to have a big effect on him going forward, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's really great how the end of it is. Jarl says, you know, promise me if you see any more, Shamblo, you'll just shoot them, and he says, 
I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I really love how that story, you know, uh, in Northwest Smith has a character development throughout the story. Um, This one, on the other hand, Tree of Life is basically a bottle episode in Mm -hmm, the life of mm -hmm. Northwest Swim. (laughs) It is a Mandalorian (laughs) He starts out being hunted, he goes through unrelated adventures, and then he's back into his normal life being hunted again. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, as an end to the career of Northwest Smith, um, well, and into what we see of his career. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's more like and the adventure continues sort of anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the way uh, Red Nails ends, too. It's really funny because if you read uh, Robert E. Howard, usually they're kind of dour endings. Like mm-hmm. my favorite is Queen of the Black Coast, right? That's got the biggest downer ending ever. Um, <laughs> his, his ship is gone. All his, his treasure's gone and his girl's gone. And now he can go have one of his gigantic melancholies, right? Um, right. But, but Red Nails, they lose all the stuff and maybe they come away with like one coin or something. And he says, don't worry, girl, we're going to go back to the coast and harry the coast of Kush or something like that. And and you get the sense of a real optimism. But Yes, it's very cheerful despite you know oh yeah they all that they won was their lives but it's right. still they rather had an, they had an adventure and they got the, they're not dead in the desert right yes <laughs> <laughs> which is great um that's why red nails is one of my favorites as well because it has that even though it's 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 kind of funny um this is not really science fiction even though uh it's got a blaster and it's set on mars right uh it's got planes it's it's technologically based but it 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 is much more like star wars genre it's the space fantasy sword and planet right it's a science fantasy it's it's a it's a romance basically exactly you know planetary but yeah he and and the thing is is i read a lot of weird tales and this is the sort of the department of weird tales that i I spend less, the least amount of time in, because mostly they didn't run it after a while because the audience wanted more weird, right? And this is not weird, weird, because it's got um, that additional uh, step outward to another setting, right? A setting beyond the earth. And yet, um, it is a strain. Go for it. Oh no! I just think it's it's funny because I mean it is like pretty weird, right? It, he's like it's totally on Mars running from the cops, like. But that's <laughs> not like, that's not considered weird. The weird part is that there's this this god essentially and this wizard, right? Uh, so uh, literally, this could totally and very like every once in a while during the original run of Conan, they would just adapt somebody else's story and put Conan <laughs> in the shoes of that character, right? Like, it doesn't even have to be a Conan story. It could be another Robert E. Howard, or it could be written by somebody else. And they just, like, there's one, um, I think it's called The Lost Valley of Iskander. And Iskander is like Alexander the Great, right? So uh, the timeline does not match up. Conan can't be uh, finding the Lost Valley of uh, Alexander the Great. But they just they just you know file off the name and shove them in there and it works fine because it, it, the same would work here. There's a little too little cutting for this to be a uh, Conan story, but um, it, it almost could be a Cull story, right? Because Cull's sort of broody and thinky. 
Yeah. Uh, and so just change some name just change some names and this could be a call story easily. Indeed. Indeed. Um so there's uh I, I accidentally spilled a bean earlier and I, I don't think you guys noticed, but I call them Windwagon Smith instead of Northwest Smith. You guys know who Windwagon Smith is? No, I don't uh-huh. know. Is it a parody? No, it's a it's a legend from the United States. Um so if you go to Wikipedia and type in Windwagon Smith it says uh Windwagon Smith is an American tall tale about a sea captain who travels in a uh, Conestoga wagon fitted with a sail across the Kansas prairie, um, subject of a 1961 Walt Disney film, which I have not seen. Well, now, wait a minute. Why didn't you talk about this when we did The Green Odyssey? Um, it never occurred to me to, to talk. Because, no, because that makes an ob- I mean, it's obvious Farmer heard about this about this uh, tall tale. And yeah, it seems That's likely. why you get the people sit, sailing across the grass sea in that. In it that seems book. likely. It seems like. Yeah, that's very farmer. <laughs> yeah. Um, the good news is uh, Frank Leslie magazine. I, you guys probably not super familiar with this. Um, no. Uh, so this the Frank Leslie magazine or newspaper or whatever it is. It's basically a kids' adventure book um, that had like the steam man of the plains. You guys know about this guy? Basically, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a. This is like an. It's sort of like um, uh, it's before Nancy Drew. It's it's more like uh, Tom Swift and his electric runabout sort of story. Mm-hmm. So there's this kid who who has who has uh, an inventor uncle, or maybe he's the inventor, and he invents a steam man to pull his cart across, you know, Kansas or whatever it is. Um, so th- that's sort of in the tradition of. And, uh, you know, they would have a report on, it says they had, a, according to Frank Leslie's Illustrated, uh, another account involves a, a guy said to have invented a sailing wagon in 1860, partially successful. This is even in um, Jules Verne, uh, Around the World in 80 Days. So one of the things they always do when they, when they depict Around the World in 80 Days, like make it a movie or just even a book, they always put like a, a hot air balloon in it. There's no hot air balloon in the whole story. It's 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 a lie, right? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> but they have trains, planes, and not automobiles. Or no, they have automobile. They have everything except for automobiles and you know planes. Has, and one of the one of the sequences is I think it's set in Utah or Nevada, which is crazy uh, because it's covered in snow and they use like a ice sledge, like in Dragonlance Dragons of Ice. <laughs> if you guys remember that. <laughs> Um, a deep cut. There's there. a deep cut. There you go. Um, so I started collecting all the I- images of that uh, and putting it under my review of, of uh, I think, The Green Odyssey because I was kind of obsessed with the idea that um, this is a real could, – could this really work? Uh, um, and it sort of half works, right? You got windy area. It'll half work. Anyways, there's this guy named Northwest uh, – no, sorry, Windwagon Smith. Windwagon. Um, and – I actually didn't encounter him through the legend at all. I encountered him through uh, a story by Lawrence Watt Evans. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Lawrence Watt Evans. Yeah. Um, it's called Windwagon Smith and the Martians. And it's basically a mashup of Windwagon Smith with Northwest Smith. Which is That's kind of, bizarre. Right? So I'm just going to read this is from uh, Lawrence Watt Evans' website, wattevans.com. I was reading Locus, 
uh, the paper magazine, not the website, uh, it was either 86 or 87, and I saw a mention of Tim Powers on Stranger Tides, which is also in a podcast I believe we've done, um, in the People publishing, People and Publishing section. It was just a brief mention saying it was an upcoming novel about pirates and voodoo. It may seem hard to believe now, but the idea of combining pirates and voodoo in fiction was new then. Incredibly, no one had done that. So far as I or anyone knew, I spoke to new. So I was amazed that this obvious combination had somehow eluded everyone for so long and tried to think of some similarly obvious connection that I could base a story on. I actually didn't find one, but that did get me to thinking about similar ideas that have been used in very different contexts, and I hit on sand ships. I knew of three very different stories involving sail-powered vessels operating on land. Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, Lord Dunsany's A Story of Land and Sea, and A Story of Windwagon Smith. Uh, I realized I could combine these and maybe get a pretty cool story out of it. So I did, but there were complications. Thomas Windwagon Smith was a real person who had been dead for a century or so, and A Story of Land and Sea was in the public domain, so I could do anything I wanted with them. But The Martian Chronicles was still very much in copyright. I caught up in the I, I was caught up in the writing of the story, though, so I put that aside for later. Instead of worrying about it, I spent almost a week researching Windwagon Smith, mostly, but not entirely, at the local library, as the World Wide Web didn't exist yet. I got some assistance from my mother in Massachusetts as well. I watched the Disney cartoon of Disney, of the saga Windwagon Smith, read at least one children's book about him, and even managed to dig up a copy of one of the original 1854 newspaper accounts of his failed demonstration for investors. <laughs> the reporter played it for laughs, correctly pointing out the biggest flaw in the whole idea. The prevailing winds blow in the wrong direction. <laughs> you can't track a ship. You can't tack a ship into the wind on land the way you can at sea. Somewhere around the fifth or sixth day, I realized I was being stupid doing all this research for a short story, one that I might not even be able to sell should Mr. Bradbury not cooperate. By that point, though, it was too late to turn back. I finished the story and sent out a copy to Mr. Bradbury asking his permission. Then I forgot about it for a couple weeks until a blue envelope arrived in the mail, which turned out to be a brief handwritten letter from Ray Bradbury giving me permission to do as I pleased with the story. It was only the legal... it was the only legal document I've ever seen handwritten in silver or ink on blue paper. <laughs> <laughs> that, wow. Uh, with that permission in hand, I sent the story to Gardner Dozois at Asimov. He bought it, and there you go. The story went on to win Asimov's Reader's Award and reprinted tr- and translated many times. It got adapted into a comic book in the form of Eclipse's Orbit and recorded as an audiobook, which is where I found it. It turns out that the week of research wasn't a waste of time at all. I don't think he had any reason to contact Ray Bradbury because there's almost no connection between. Yeah, but it's cool that he did. I, 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 I like that he thought to do that and got the letter back and everything. I just thought of another mm-hmm. set of novels that more recent, much more recent that have like sailing, sailing on the ground as a thing. And that would be Bradley Bowie's 12 Kings of Sharakai and its sequels. There's, it, the, the the main city is set in an oasis in a desert. So getting out of the desert, they basically have sand sand ships, which basically with big sails and sail or use the winds of the desert to mm. get them across. So it's it's real thing. Now the other thing I was thinking of, I wish somebody would write. It. I don't have the chops to do it. I mean, you got you got this you got uh, this wind this uh, windward windwagon Smith. You got mm. Paul Bunyan. You got all these American myths across the country 
wouldn't it be nice if somebody would decide to make a novel and basically tie them together or at least <laughs> connect them? I mean, I mean, we 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 have. Where's Philip Zion Farmer when we need him? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because we, we because we because we got novels that fill with. Arthurian mythos and mm. running around with all of those and yeah, there we are a lot of that, American mythos, aren't they? Right, but the, but the, I mean, I mean, Neil Gaiman's American Gods kind of waves in this direction, but doesn't go for it. But it's like imagine someone traveling across a mythic United States, swapping tales with Paul Bunyan, sailing across mm. the plains with Windwag and Smith, and all the other, all the other types of uh, these Steam Man myth- of the plains and etc. Right. Yeah. And then once we have we even think of or heard of like there's a whole vein of American mythology here just waiting for someone like Tim Powers to take and make a grand American mythology novel. Mm-hmm. Somebody write this. Uh, so, somebody's probably working on it. It'll probably come out in 20 years after they finish researching everything, right? <laughs> um, take a hell of a I want to I want to point out that I don't think. Lawrence Watt Evans even knew that C.L. Moore had a character named uh, Northwest Smith. If he did, he, he'd forgotten it. Um, and I don't think that uh, necessarily that even C.L. Moore knew about the original Windwagon Smith. Um, but Smith is that name. It's it's like Joe Anybody, right? It can be John Smith. Is is uh, it's it's. Oh, your... I have some information about this mm-hmm. from a. Uh... A, an afterword that C.L. Moore wrote to Chamblot and other stories. Oh, okay. um, she said that uh, f- uh, for for the first Northwest S- Smith story, Chamblot, the mm-hmm. first thing that came to her mind was just the image of a red figure running. And she decided that that was a girl and she needed someone to balance that in her story. So mm-hmm. she created a hero and she had... Let's see. Um, Obviously, she was going to need help. Also, a foil to set her off effectively and give the story a shape it didn't yet have. So Northwest Smith strolled on stage without even a glance my way, perfectly sure of what he was going to do about this. Northwest Smith? Well, once I had typed a letter to an N.W. Smith, Mm -hmm. and the name lingered tantalizingly in my mind, waiting for this moment. And uh, then she goes on to explain that she decided, uh, uh, you know, that someone else, a third character, was needed in the story. So she came up with the Venusian Yerol. And I cannot conceal from you, she says, that it is an anagram from the letters in the name of the typewriter well, I was yeah. using. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That 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 uh, she also uh, yeah that's in the Wikipedia entry part parts of what you were saying there. And then it says um, in the and this is where I was thinking as well when I was thinking about the character's name. In the history of the United States and Canada, the term Northwest recurs in various contexts, obviously, um, but it brings the connotation of the wild frontier, exploration and adventure. Northwest Territory, right, in the United States. Northwest Territory in Canada. Northwest Passage, which is basically the British keep trying to find what they now have, which is clear passes through the Arctic, right? Um, And the Northwest Rebellion, which is another Canadian sort of... uh, Manitoba is Northwest at that time. (laughs) In any case, um, it... 
it's, it is also funny that, you know, Northwest of Space, I think, is the book collection, right? And, of course, there is no Northwest in space, right? So that's, that's also fun. Um, so uh, that's what, like, I, I don't think C.L. Moore consciously said, I'm going to model this after Wind Wagon Smith, but it is that frontiersman um, who takes his name uh, from what he's doing, right? He gets the, uh, I don't know. You guys remember when I uh, when I was a kid? Do you remember when I was a kid? There was a when we were children. <laughs> yes, Jesse. <laughs> when we were children, there was a show on TV about a Grizzly Adams. Yeah, I remember Grizzly Adams about right? man in California. He was a right. fugitive from the law. He's not technically a grizzly, but he because he spends his time with grizzlies, he's called Grizzly Adams, right? And that right. name Adams also gives you it's like Smith it's full of connotation or in the case of Smith opposite it's full of uh, allowing you to put yourself in that person's point of view it's, and Adams he's, he's out there in nature trying to recreate the Garden of Eden with a bear <laughs> 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 the grizzly children are still out there I guess um, so uh, I, uh, before uh, before we wrap I have to read you a poem that's in this same issue. Um, it's called The Lost Temples of Xantus. It's by a guy named Hal Calhoun, um, who, as far as I can tell, didn't write much. I, I did a show on this. I'm going by memory, but I believe this is his only contribution to Weird Tales. Um, but it is uh, very inspirational, I think. So I'm going to read this for you. It's called The Lost Temples of Xantus. Celestial fantasies of deathless night and raptured colonnades adorned with pearls, resplendent guardians of crimson light, expanse of darkness silently unfurls. Among colossal ruins of stone, this shore that once was pearled by Xantus's rolling seas, nothing remains upon this barren core of Mars but your palatial memories." Your altars and magnificent black gods still flash beneath the sapphire's torches' flames. The fragrant ring of sacred flowers nods beneath the monstrous idol's gilded frames. Your jeweled gates swing open on their bands of gold. Within a lurid shadow stands. That's a whole Mm -hmm. poem. Um, Doesn't really tell you what it's doing, but basically it's set on Mars, right? There's an ancient civilization there, and uh, um, what I what I thought of instantly when I was reading it uh, the first time was that it was it was John Carter, not um, Windwagon. Uh, sorry, Northwest Smith, <laughs> but it could very well be uh, Northwest Smith, right? In, in another part of Mars where they used there's this sea. It once was, right? Now dry, which we have in the beginning of this. Um, There's temples. There's the abandoned city or virtually abandoned city. Millions of years old, right? Um, So uh, I wrote a... uh, This is one of the things I do with my students besides reading the uh, Iliad. (laughs) Is um, we, uh, we take vocabulary from whatever thing we just read and then uh, to practice it and get it into our vocab 
Uh, we write stories based on you know six of the of the vocabulary words. So my vocab words from this one were adorn, unfurl, palatial, sacred, lurid, and resplendent. And then you just instantly are forced to write a story. So I kind of wrote a sequel to the Lost Temples of Xantus, and I said. Adorned with a golden cape and knowing a knowing grin, John Carter walked the streets of Xantus, lost temples glowering at his tiny body. Unfurl, verb. <laughs> Above Phobos and Deimos uh, zipped away from each other, unfurling another long, chill nightscape. Palatial, adjective. Seeking refuge from the coming chill, Carter wrapped his wubford cloak about himself and sought a uh what's that say palatial place to camp <laughs> uh, sacred adjective ahead a once sacred temple opened wide its doors in welcome to this unmartian intruder lurid adjective stepping within carter saw a lurid shadow stand uh resplendent adjective diminutive in its sapphire shadow, Carter beheld the resplendent goddess Vesta, who welcomed him with a deathless warmth, which he embraced willingly. So basically, I just sort of retold the story of the Tree of Life <laughs> without having read the Tree of Life. It, that's what I think she's doing here, is she's mixing, right? She's remixing um, these sort of images. And I don't think that C.L. Moore is consciously trying to channel uh, John Carter and and uh, Burroughs, but I think that that's what happens, right? When you put Burroughs out into the world, people absorb it uh, consciously, unconsciously, directly, indirectly, and then they reflect it. So that uh, yeah, I I really like I like her writing. Um, this isn't her best story, I would say. I I think Chamblot is. It's a little more sharp, and maybe sharp's the wrong word. That makes it's uh, uh, it's like a little more poisonous, maybe. Whereas this it is, sticks with you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's got it's got that sharper edge, I think, somewhere. But it's it's a little more deadly. This is good though, very good. And, and, def- and definitely, I mean, speaking of poem, definitely Blake inspired. I bet she read. Red Tiger Tiger thought I could use that because I mean <laughs> well, the, those those two lines come up again and again in the story. Yeah, I, in fact, there's a number of lines where I'm I'm fairly certain she's lifting from somewhere. Um, just the the it's a, the syntax more than the actual words, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and in a, in the part of the fun for me reading authors you know, reading deeply into their catalog is you sort of get a sense of how, what haunts them. If you, yeah. Well, yeah. What inspired, what inspired and infused their writing. Yeah, right, definitely. Right. So, um, in reading lots of Lovecraft, you see the sea is a metaphor, uh, or an image that is just, even when he's on land, it's, it's there subconsciously. And, um, and in, in fact, sort of every, every, Everything in Philip K. Dick's got his own stuff. C.L. Moore, um, I think she's a little um, more commercially minded, but 
it's it's like in the same way that Howard is, you know. Howard is willing to uh, write for anybody to make money, but it doesn't matter because he's still haunted by the same stuff. I, I feel like that's true for Moore as well. It's it's hard, a little bit hard to tell because she wrote a lot with her husband, right, Cutner. Right, and 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 some some stories came up under. Yeah, they, and you don't know one who wrote, really came under wrote the other what, name, right? But yeah, but but I mean, they were really aligned in how they wrote. So, but the, the fact they were, that they wind up flow, flowing together so much, it's hard to tease that out. Yeah, but like like if you were a reader back then and you don't know Seal Moore is a woman, um, you'd say, well, he's kind of like Robert E. Howard. Right. He's, uh, In that, fact, uh, Henry Cutner did not know that right. C.L. Moore was a woman when he wrote her his first fan mail. But he did, mm-hmm. he did yeah, when he married hilarious. her. That's so. hilarious. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but not at first. Trish is right. Yeah, it, no, it, absolutely. They had no idea. They just wrote it. And I, I, I want to point out uh, a lot of people get uh, she's hiding her identity behind uh, her initials. I, I don't think that there's any evidence for that. Um, in the same issue, we've got R.H. Barlow, um, of course, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, right? That was just a more common thing to do, is use your initials as your uh, opening. I, I'm not sure why uh, that was so common, but it was it was a trend that sort of happened. There was another one that was like, everybody's a captain or a lieutenant or something at the end. Well, I don't know if she was deliberately hiding her feminine identity, but if she were, no, no shame to her because I mean the sexism was real. Not, not um, in Weird Tales. I got to tell you, Weird Tales was oh, not um, sexist at all. In fact, most of the readership has got to be at least forty percent women, and the authorship. Sometimes you would have like in this one, we got a Mary Elizabeth Councilman, a Dorothy Quick, a C.L. Moore. Um, uh, I don't know uh, that the others aren't, but they some some women's names are hidden by initials, but women didn't change their names for for uh, Weird Tales and and the readership in the back, you know, like you'd see what people are asking for and wanting. It was it was not largely female. It was almost equally female. I would say it's surprising. You get teenage girls. And you get, uh, you know, 60-year-old ladies, and you get uh, lots of men, of course, um, but boys and girls and women and men of all ages. That's really cool. It is really cool. And, uh, in fact, um, you know, I would say the default is there's more female poets, but not a lot more. Um, And as to female authors, I would say that it's probably 30%, something like that. Um, and and the other thing is like um, in terms of tiers, uh, as in levels. Um, when people think of weird tales, they think of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, and um, Robert E. Howard. Um, and usually they add in Seabird Quinn, who I've never read anything by because I don't like what I hear, um, and I'm kind of picky. Um, but then next tier down would be C.L. Moore, right? She'd be in the top of that tier. So. Um, and then you know, get Robert Locke and a bunch of other people, but um, there 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 are a large number of women writers contributing to Weird Tales under female names, not under pseudonyms. It, it never seemed to be a, a pseudonym issue, except with H.P. Lovecraft, 
where he was, I mean, that we know of, right? And that's because um, he had kind of a beef with the author, uh, the editor, who he was offered the job before uh, Farnsworth Wright was, and Farnsworth, we think Farnsworth Wright kind of held that against him. Kind of jealous because he doesn't have the chops, but whatevs. Mm. In any case, um, yeah, very good issue of Weird Tales and very good story. I think I'm glad. I'm, gl- I'm glad we finally did a more story for a podcast. Yeah, for another more only story, mm-hmm. not with Cutner. I would highly recommend No Woman Born. Uh, it is oh. very different from the Northwest Smith stories. It is science fiction set in the present-ish day of the night of the 20th century anyway um but it's about a woman who's burned in a fire and a scientist builds basically an android body for her hey um whoa and and shouldn't it be uh, a gynoid body (laughs) otherwise otherwise, Um, well it's actually uh interesting it's composed of mostly of rings of metal rather than you know stick figure robot clank clank um and so her her you know singing and dancing uh this this robot uh, this rings composition sculpture body uh is very fluid and conveys you know the woman that she used to be Mm. and the the narrator of the story who is who is not her who is a friend of hers um uh is wondering, you know, is this really her? Will it evolve into a not her robot mind thing? So it has some really interesting things mm-hmm. about identity and consciousness in it. It's in a, it was an astounding. That's probably why I'm not not uh, super familiar with it. I'm not a big astounding fan, um, but uh, I will look into that and see if it is public domain and, and uh, put it up because it, it, it apparently was published in Science Fiction 101, which is a book I have in another title. The Silverbergs? Is that Silverberg oh, one? Yeah, that's a Silverberg. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of uh Worlds of Wonder and are they the same book? Yeah, it is the same book. It is yeah, I I, I know I think it came on a couple of different editions. Yeah. Uh, that makes me want to read it. That that book's got great stuff in it. Uh Fondly Fahrenheit, Scanners Live in Vain, Colony by Philip K. Dick, Little Black Bag, not a big fan of that. Day Millions in there. And uh No Woman Born. I think I didn't read it because it was a novelette, but mind you, I did read Fondly Fahrenheit, which is a novelette. It's, They're all novelettes. Yep, yep. Jeez. Oh. Four and One, Fondly Fahrenheit, No Woman Born, Light of Other Days. The Hunter, There's a great story. The Monsters, yeah. Common Time, Scanners the Monsters, the terrific story. Ja- oh, there's a Jack Vance one here. It's a new Prime, oh. Colony by Philip K. Dick. Oh, yeah. Wow, that is a nice collection. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesse, if you put the time into reading No Woman Born, I believe you will find it rewarding. The only way I can do that is if uh, if I can do it for a podcast. That's the only way I can read now. <laughs> so you if have I no could, time otherwise? Okay. No, because I got uh, two podcasts a week and uh, I, everything feeds in, right? So it's- I, I, I understand. I feel like I read for podcasts and reviews more than for pleasure dude almost, it's, almost it's like, the same thing except uh you know it restrict it's restriction right and that's kind of good i want it to be restricted because there's too well, much there's to a fire hose yeah, there's a fire hose of stuff out there dude so, yeah. the fire hose is 50 fire hoses now <laughs> True. i get so many emails requesting reviews and i'm like i would love to help you sorry i can't 
Uh, and like literally, I would love to help, but I can't because I I've committed myself to, to talking about seventeenth uh, century novels and uh, poetry that no one reads. <laughs> uh, well, I will look up No Woman Born. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely looking it up. I uh, I read a lot of Astounding. It's it's mostly not good. Yeah, it's mostly not it it. You know, I'm sure that that's true of a lot of other stuff too. But I just found astounding is it, it depends on the author, right? But there's a lot of dross in there. That's right. Well, there's some gender stereotyping and stuff in this story. Of course, you know, it was a story of its times. But I'm able to take that with a grain of salt and mm-hmm. move on and look at the other stuff in it. Yeah, well, astounding is especially like that. Uh. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it's because the editor is kind of a doofus. Uh, <laughs> doofus yes. is doofus is uh, as opposed to fascist. Uh, maybe he's a, he's a fascist. A, a racial doofus, um, dude. I, I can't believe this. I, I was I was watching one of those compilation of trailers yesterday. You know, TV show trailers, and there was one for uh, a new. Uh, I was going to say new show. It's third season show called Siren. Not sirens, but siren, and and obviously that's in here too. Uh, this is a uh, sort of a Odysseus in the the um, sirens story as well, right? With that calling and the lady and all. I mean, it's oh, absolutely, it's it's in there. Uh, very classical uh, trap, right? Anyways, um, this show siren. <laughs> I was reading it said, um, uh, just saw a TV show trailer with this line in it. Quote, we are the most evolved species on the planet. This is one mermaid talking to another mermaid. I hate that phrase, most evolved species on the planet. Lie, is, lie, 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 lie. It's not a it's it's like a fundamental misunderstanding that people have been having basically since the mid 18th century, uh, mid 19th century, right? Yeah. And this is actually that thinking is behind all of that eugenics shit. All of this uh, ascending and descending a ladder of evolution is like fundamentally misunderstanding what evolution is, right? Completely getting it wrong. And then they just throw it. And I said, this is a show about mermaids. This is a show set in 2020. (laughs) It has a 94% uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I said, I despair for our species. Someone from our species wrote that. And then they put it on a show. And that, that's why we have problems with, um, you know, like nobody, nobody said, no, you don't understand. That's not how it works. Even if it is a fantasy show set uh, with mermaids fighting each other underwater, I don't care. Um, what still channel stu- is this on? Uh, like- it's Hulu or one of those... One of those freeform, I think it was. Oh, we. I mean, that's like, it's even filmed like like ten feet from my mom's house, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm not watching this show. That's the stupidest line I've heard this year. <laughs> oh, and then the other show that was in that group of trailers. Um, out, meanwhile, Apple TV has a Apple TV Plus has a show about a fourth grade student investigating a murder as an accredited <laughs> journalist. It is not a drama. What, 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 uh, yeah, sorry. What? It is a drama, and it is not an animated series. And then at the beginning, it says inspired by a nine-year-old journalist. This is 
This is the level of uh, stuff we're dealing with, guys. I, I would watch that. Dude. Kid Detective? Kid Detective? It's not your show, Jesse. It's Dude. not aimed at you. It's not aimed at humans because... The, the, it's it, not it, aimed at it's humans? Like a, no, no. It's like a kitten detective. I would totally get behind that because that that's ridiculous, right? But the the way the show trailer works, they're treating it like it's a serious show. It's not a comedy. It's not like a you know Encyclopedia Brown. It's not sort of this this fantasy. They're treating it like a serious show, and that is. <laughs> but don't you want to see? No. I want not to be uh, let, involved. Let me tell you about this show that I'm watching, Jesse, because I want to hear you explode. Okay. Um, have you heard of this TV show called Love is Blind? Mm-mm. It's a Netflix TV show. Oh, and so many. The basic premise is uh, they got like uh, 20 men and 20 women to like be a part of this experiment where uh, they're allowed to talk to each other without seeing each other, and uh, they have to decide to get married. Oh, God. And so, like, you propose before you see the person. And uh, so, uh, like, how do you feel about that? Do you want to see that show? No, that's a new, that's one of those um, fake, like, The Bachelor shows, right? They're, they're all fake anyways. Like, if, if there was some legal requirement that... People commit for 20 years of marriage over it. Uh, there would be some artificial drama created there that was substantially like a train wreck that I'd need to see, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Well, so the show, they get married, and then you get to see, like, the consequences of them getting married in this way. And, and I'm sure that's not a good consequence. Oh, no, certainly not. Like, like one woman, like, didn't realize that she was, like, marrying a white guy until after they agreed to got, get married and then her family was like why did you bring this white guy home this is insane what have mm. you done why, why are you su- such a TV whore that you have to exp- <laughs> change your life and re- make yourself ridiculous to be on TV why is that the focus of oh yeah life? I mean like these people aren't like you're not supposed they're not to humans. like they're well, no, they're th- no. That's People the that's the appeal acting. is they are human and they've like made this totally like 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 intellectually and like morally bankrupt decision. That's what I'm to, saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're and you're watching the uh, like it's uh, it's it's the spectacle. It's like, kind of like abuse. It's like no. I mean, it really like. Uh, I mean, really, like, I'm to blame for watching these shows on some level. Uh, But, I mean, it really is just, like, this is a show about, like, people totally subordinating themselves to, like... It's, like, not even money. It's just fame. Yes. And it's not Uh, even good fame. Like, like, It's infamy, in fact. Yeah. 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 uh, I need to be on TV so bad that, no. No, I'm not. Yeah, but isn't that, like, really... uh, I mean, it's very science fictional, right? Uh, well... It's, well, like, I mean, like, this concept is, yeah, it's hard to believe. It's like, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you should do a, we should do a podcast on reality TV, uh, as no, a, as a science no, fictional no. concept. Oh, well, we've done that, right? The Running Man. That's a really good book. Really good movie. Yeah. Um, there's one called, uh, what was the, the Robert Sheckley one we did, Paul? Um, it's called the Prize of Peril. Um, well, right, Prize of Peril. And, 
That's yeah. uh, was that a double episode? I can't remember, but Prize of Peril is oh. the same thing. It's it's a it's a terrific um, man on the run show for money. Uh, if you survive, you get money. If you don't survive, then you're one of the contestants who died in the chasing of the money, right? So, <laughs> and and there was a, a German movie adaptation that's really good. So it's been dealt with in science fiction for sure. And I, I'm very interested in that. But the actual... Um, the raw content? The, oh, you can't, you can't really pay me to watch any, any of those. No, you literally couldn't pay me. I, unless it was like a hell of a lot of money for a very short amount of time. Because I don't want to be traumatized by the indignities that I feel when I see people doing shit like that. Um, like agreeing to get married to someone who they've had like a few days of conversations with. Well, I mean, that, uh, don't blind people do that? Oh, well, yeah, but like usually people don't like agree to get married in like a week of meeting each other. Yeah. It's it's a fake. Regardless of whether fake, they fake, see fake. or not. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, I think you're doing your spirit wrong, Paul. Uh, Will. I think, well, I think you're wow. doing your spirit wrong by watching that. You're you're gonna regret it. I mean, um, I, uh, I on the other think hand, think of it as being like uh, you know, um, like the world of like the Warren Ellis comic uh, Transmetropolitan. Like mm. that's like actually the world that we live in. Yeah, so I, 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 I was not a fan of that comic in. either. Um, I don't know why, but I didn't get into it. Everybody else got into it, but I, I read the first issue and I'm like. I think it was he had some tattoos on his head. And I'm like, why do you have tattoos on your head, bud? Yeah, you're just not for this world. Like, I I'm think, not. like, in, like, 50 years, like, everyone is going to have facial tattoos. Like, uh, no, Look, if, if if it's in your your culture in the sense that, you know, you're uh, Maori, if you're uh, into scarification because your tribe's into You're a SoundCloud rapper. SoundCloud rapper is that a culture? Okay, <laughs> it could be. I think so. Um, I just I, I think of how much or like those with the gauges where people try and stretch their earlobes out. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's uh, that freaks me out more than facial tattoos for some reason. <laughs> well, or, 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 or their lips, they they stick the thing in the jaw. Right. It, 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 I mean, it's I, a, I it's say a, read a, a book. It's a waste waste, no, waste no, some time reading a book instead of doing no. that. I, but I can, I can understand why some cultures would go for that as a way of distinct of distinguishing yourselves, uh, group identity through shared pain. There's, I mean, well, we've gone far, far beyond the tree of life at this point. But there, but there are, there are good, there are good Sorry, guys. everything. Everything's crazy in the shade of the tree of tree of life fall. Everything's crazy. So, do you think that like what's his name? Bag. He's working. Bag. Are we in the are we in the fag bubble? Is that the world we live in? That would explain See, a that, lot. That's a, today, that Will. makes their story a lot richer. That's the metaphor for uh, we're definitely in the fag bubble. Definitely, some of us are all snuggled up to the tree in the sniff of those flowers, <laughs> and others are running screaming from the tree, <laughs> hoping to find a way out. None of us carry blasters. <laughs> yeah, that's the. That's the lie of the story is you can't actually like murder Thag by shooting it. It's like much more fundamental to what's going on. That's true. He never really got out. That's why this is the last story, right? <gasps> oh, 
oh, no. Or I just assume that, I mean, the story opens up. Uh, he's like, okay, I'm hiding out from the cops. He knows mm-hmm. that, like, he's going to get hungry or thirsty soon, and mm-hmm. the cops are going to get him when he tries to forage. Mm-hmm. Like, that situation doesn't change. So I just assume that the cops, like, kill him. No, no, he said he was going to give himself up uh, at the beginning uh, because he was hungry and thirsty and they'd feed him, right? Yeah, but what if they just kill him? <laughs> I don't think that's how this works. He's a white man. He's fine. Do, do, do we have that? I mean, do those rules <laughs> I, apply on Mars? <laughs> I, think, I think so. He's the hero, right? Yeah, but he's also just like a, like a desperate criminal. Yeah, he's not that desperate. Yeah, this is fantasy world, right? I mean, Han Solo doesn't get. I mean, that's why. That's what so fundamentally. Han Solo was murdered by his son in that's, front of that's everybody. That's what I'm saying. That's why <laughs> people fundamentally reject the whole thing, right? Is that that's not on? That that's what that's what you can't kill that hero. That's like saying, um, you know, a Superman can die. Yeah, you can kill him off for an episode, but that's a fake. Look what happened when Doyle tried to kill off Sherlock Holmes. Exactly. It didn't stick. Exactly. People wouldn't accept it. He tried to kill him off, couldn't kill him off. Had to retcon it and fix it so that everything, right? And, you know, he's still got stories being written about him. You can't kill off a character like that. Um, So, yeah, I'm sure they'll bring him back. Um, They're going to retcon it. Northwest Smith was. Will live forever. Remember Spock? Like Spock died. They brought him back. Yes, they did. And we had yep, to bring I, him back. Even though we love that sacrifice at the end of uh, Star Trek 2. And, 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 and I remember reading Starlog back in the day. I had not seen Star Trek 2 in the theaters because I had not seen him. I didn't get to see a movie in the theater until 1983. I remember reading Starlog about all these theories about how to bring Spock back. This before thinking about all these theories about how can we bring Star- Spock back and make it plausible. It's like, wow. All you need is a Catra, Paul, and then everybody's good. Well, 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 well this is before the movie came out. I mean, there's some interest, there were some suggestions like, oh, let's go to the Mirror Universe again and bring that Spock over. It's like, why would Just you do that? Give him a that? shave. Give him a shave and everything's the same. He's like, the same guy. No. Yeah. It, 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 it's like, yeah, you, you can't kill off a beloved character. Or, or on the other hand, I mean, except for the novels that he wrote, when they killed off Kirk, it stuck. How did they kill off Kirk? Oh, I in think... Star Trek Generation, they dropped a bridge on him. Yeah, well, that again. That was a terrible way for him to die. I don't. I don't. <laughs> that's not in my canon. So it was a. So that was a generational changing of the guard, though. You know. Yeah, you no, have... but to drop a bridge on him lamely, I hated that. And I'm not a gigantic fan of Captain Kirk. I'm much more of a Spock, a Spock, and the rest of the crew kind of guy. But you know, that's like that's lame. That should have gone stuck. out on. An actual, you know, bridge of a starship fighting another starship or, or, or something. Yeah, or, Not had a bridge dropped on him. Yeah, he should have gone <laughs> yeah, down with desert, Enterprise, like, right? What's that? Should have gone down with Enterprise. That would yes. that would have been better, yes. Or right. gone through a space warp, even though you thought it was going down with a ship. Turns out he sp- space warped into another uh, galaxy and now has He's, to recrew the have, sh- ship with blah, blah, blah. Or right. have a career as a pop star. <laughs> um, did you guys see uh, this is a year uh, you probably wouldn't I'm, I assume you're all following my Twitter feed I had a sort of argument with people uh, as to what the 
the best episodes of Star Trek's movies were. Um, it, it, and so, like, everybody agrees that Star Trek II, the original, not the uh, remake of Wrath of Khan, because that not, doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah, not the remake. The remake is awful. The original Star Trek II is probably the best, and maybe four is also amazing. And then three is good, and then nobody Six likes is five. Fun. Six is good, and then we forget about Generations oh, and all that. But I have a secret about five I have to mention real quick. Okay, but I the school. argument I'm making in this tweet from a while ago is that Star Trek One gets better and better every year, and that eventually <laughs> it will exceed in our collective consciousness. The it will become. It's like it's surpassing uh, four at this point. It's go- it just keeps going up, and because it's more true to Star Trek in a lot of respects, it's the most Star Trek. Uh, it's most like an episode, right? Um, it is definitely like an episode, but it's a, it's too slow. Jesse. It's an art film. It's got no. Paul. It's got it's got pacing problems. It's an, it's no, an art it's film. An, no, it is an art film. <laughs> if you look at if you look at it. It's like there's these long sequences, like just at the end of, uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick movie, um, 2001, this long sequence of, you know, shit flying at the camera, and you're so- sitting there going, gosh, this is taking a long time. That's, a, that's what an art film is, right? It's like a Russian film, Tarkovsky or something, right? Just, some guy gets on a train to go into the, the, the zone that the aliens came down into. And he gets on the train and he spends like 45 minutes on his train. You just sit there watching him, seeing the scenery go by. That's how you know you're in a Russian art film. <laughs> There's 45 minutes of film of a guy going across the tundra. But that's what I'm saying is, is the, uh, the Robert Wise um, film, the, the special effects, are all they all still stand up, right? The idea is really a big idea. It's that major idea right um and uh it is it's like wrath of khan is really fun everybody agrees everybody thinks it's great but it's it's not as big an idea it's just a revenge movie right it's not really science fiction in the same sense that major it's moby it's moby dick it's all sorts of it's it's the classic revenge story it's absolutely milton and moby dick and shakespeare and all that good stuff, right? All those great lifts. And it's got that themes of getting older and blah, blah, blah. Right? So it, it has everything to love. But Star Trek 1 is, is getting better and better every year. Meanwhile, in the darkness, Star Trek 1 gets better and better every year. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it Star in a Trek while. Star Trek 1 but... is tag. <laughs> no. Beecher wants Mer- is you, you with the creator. Right. No, I just I just think that, you know, like the so, yeah, but you're basically arguing that Star Trek one is like gaining more gravity with time Absolutely. and will like uh, ultimately will all time, like be it was, it felt unsatisfying. Right. It felt unsatisfying. This is not what we want. That's why they changed the uniforms for the next one. Right. And, that, and then we got. I, the, go for yeah, it. I have like almost no memory of like the first Star Trek movie anymore. You don't really need it. You just have to understand there's this thing lurking out there that we sent out all, all on its own it got lonely and now it's come back to me it's a frankenstein right and and then spock uh, spock kirk does what he does which is try to talk the computer down right i'm gonna blow up the world and then 
<laughs> and then the computer, Kirk says, no, 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 no. We can be friends. We can figure this out. Or you could just rewatch the Changeling episode from the original series. Yeah, but it's um, not as good. Which is basically the same it's thing. It's the exact it's same story. With oh, yeah. Nomad. Yeah, isn't that the one with Nomad? Yeah. 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 It, it, it <laughs> is total ripoff of the same exact story. but Or vice versa. But the thing is, is it works. Re- I mean, a lot of... The, and honestly, as an entertainment movie, I don't think there's any any Star Trek movie better than Voyage Home. It's just so fun. Right, we get every. It, it was remember those stupid Star Trek episodes where they go back in time to Earth and they try and do a spinoff with some lady yes. who's a cat and there's a guy oh, yeah, who's a secret yeah. agent. Yeah. Earth. That was right. a terrible. Gar, that it, would have been a fun show to it watch. It could have been a fun <laughs> show. I, I like the idea, but honestly, it's just not a good episode. But sending them to San Francisco in what 1985 or whatever, where Spock has to figure out what exact change is. And they get on the bus, and <laughs> they all split up, and then they meet back up, and Scotty's got his transparent aluminum. Too much LDS. And I didn't get the joke at the time. When I saw the movie, when I saw the movie like, too much LDS, Latter-day I didn't realize States. at the time that meant Latter-day States. I didn't know that at the time. I thought they just switched LSD, or I didn't realize I it was a double they joke. I believe that, they that, did. That, that <laughs> they were going for uh, Latter-day Saints. I didn't realize at don't, the time. I thought both, just, I think. Yeah, I didn't realize at the time it was both. It's like Galeo's like, oh, now I get it. Oh, so te- nice. well, well, it's a better. Well, Star Trek One is a better film. Star Trek Four is the most fun. That's my argument. And then Star Trek and 2 there's is- no space ba- and there's no space battles in four. That's fun. That's fine. Oh no! Whereas- don't they have a, like a? The the, the, the Vedra Pro blows up some things. That's all they have in Star Trek Four. No, Star Trek, space Star Trek One is. Uh, yeah, yes, space Star Trek One, which ha- where they had the retcon things. So it's like why are Klingons using Federation and just photon torpedoes? Like that really annoyed me. It's like what the heck? They're not. It's like why are they using Federation weapons? That's wrong. Well, they, they, Firing backwards, even. It's like that's Star not Trek, how that works. In Star Trek Four, they use a Klingon ship. Come on. Cool. Yeah, and, and that's fine, and and, and that's fine, and the, the, but that also had the whole thing. Like, why I think, I think we're done the podcast, by the way. Yeah, I, I <laughs> now, now I want Jesse's ratings of the Superman movies. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.